No joke, if you are feeling hopeless or in a suicidal crisis, immediate help is available and we'll discuss it in detail. I'm Dr. Rob Tarswell. Say what you want about Cato the Minor. That suicide took guts. I'm Kevin Leeson. I've heard of people shoving religion down your throat, but this is ridiculous. I'm Torn Atkinson. Working to make your Mondays worth living for. I'm Joe Fulgham, and this is Caustic Soda. Yet another chapter in the ongoing Caustic Soda is side guide. Perhaps our most controversial subject to date. Kevin aside. Oh, I wish. Put me out of my misery after researching this one. Suicide. Ah, so. Let the funny ensue. <laughs> From Latin sui, of oneself. Right. Suicide. Killing side, of side, oneself. side killing. Side yes. equals killing. Yep. Sui equals self. The description is the deliberate killing of oneself. Suicide is often committed out of despair, frequently attributed to a mental disorder, such so, as depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, etc. So it's not the killing of a pig collar. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be suicide. Right, okay. Yeah. Uh Often, Since Kevin's reading, I have to do that. Uh, yes, no, yeah. I don't blame you at all for that <laughs> terrible, terrible joke. Uh, frequently attributed to alcohol or drug abuse, stress okay. factors such as financial difficulties or troubles with interpersonal relationships often play a role. Around 800,000 to a million people die by suicide every year worldwide, making it the 10th leading cause of death. Rates are higher in men than in women, males three to four times more likely to kill themselves mm, than females. Okay. There are an estimated 10 to 20 million non-fatal suicide attempts every year. Uh, we will not be talking about suicide attacks, such as kamikaze or suicide bombers. Right. That will be its own separate episode. Right. Okay. Uh, so you're saying that uh, you are more likely to commit suicide if your life sucks? Uh, if you think your life sucks. If you think your life sucks. Mm. Yes, that is definitely a factor. And if your life sucks. There's no doubt about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dr. Rob is going to be with us today uh, as a medical professional and one who has special expertise in suicide. Would you say you have bona fides? The vast majority of my work is in emergency psychiatry, and about 80% of emergency psychiatry is assessing uh, suicidality. Either suicidality. individuals who have suicidal thoughts or urges or anywhere from have just taken, say, some mild self-injury up through something like an overdose all the way up to somebody who's in the ICU who put a shotgun to their chest. I would call that right. a yes, then, that, that you are absolutely qualified to talk about this. Well, uh, I want to throw out a special thanks to our intern, Corey, who <laughs> was absolutely essential in the research for this episode, as well as Fred Bremer, who uh, alerted me to one thing that I had no idea about. Prior to getting into compiling the factoids for this stuff, uh, which I want to talk about right now, a public service announcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, copycat suicides. Uh, copycat suicide is an emulation of a suicide due to accounts or depictions of an original suicide. Suicides occasionally spread through a school system, community, or even nationally following a celebrity sco- suicide. Mm. A spike of emulation suicides is often known as the Werther effect. Werther. Named after Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. In the novel, Werther commits suicide with a pistol after he is rejected by the woman he loves. Goethe's novel was published in 1774, and not long after, young men began to mimic the character by dressing in yellow pants and blue jackets and using the same method to commit suicide. Goethe. Wow. This resulted in a ban of the book in several places. Mm. 
So uh, do you have anything to say about the uh, Werther effect, Dr. Rob? You very much see it. Uh, I think 20 years ago, after Kurt Cobain's death, the increase of death, uh, suicide by gunshot among young men spiked over that entire summer. And uh, occasionally you'll see in school districts if, uh, say, uh, a young person uh, commits suicide, depending how the school handles that, that can either trigger or extinguish a, uh, a string of, of, uh, of copycat suicides. So in one instance in New Brunswick, uh, after a 14-year-old committed suicide about 15 years ago, the school held a massive memorial service and the whole oh, community came out. Right. And then there was another suicide. And then there was another massive memorial. And then there was another one. And then somebody said... Didn't they catch on? They did it by the... Yeah, by number three. (laughs) Yeah. And then it was a case of, oh, okay, we got to actually maybe sort of downplay this and not kind of glorify this person like a tiny god. Because we've kind of known about this since 1774. I guess the word didn't get to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. Well, they couldn't pronounce Vita. <laughs> oh, that was it. That was it. Uh, so in being alerted to this trend, uh, obviously it raised concerns uh, amongst the researchers about how we can responsibly do this topic yeah. and not mm-hmm. create an emulation effect ourselves. Right. And I found a document called Preventing Suicide, a Resource for Media Professionals. I think Dr. Rob found this, didn't he? He did. Found it in but, his bag. Yeah, and I, I found it. Anyone could have found it. I found it in the link in my email Let's box. Let's not argue it's, about who it's, found it's what. It's meant to be easy to find. It's I published just wanna, by the World Health Organization. I just want to give props to Dr. Rob for helping us out on this. Uh, the World Health Organization's Department of who? Mental... <laughs> Mental Health and oh. Substance Abuse uh, put out this report, and it states... Public service announcement! Oh. Uh, Over 50 investigations into imitative suicides have been conducted and have consistently drawn the same conclusion. Media reporting of suicide can lead to imitative suicidal behavior. It is accentuated when the person described and the suicidal person are very similar. Particular subgroups, for example, young people and people suffering from depression, etc., may be especially vulnerable to imitative behaviors. A few handy rules to reduce the effect of imitative behaviors. So if if a guy who looks like me... Mm -hmm. No, more like a guy who acts like you. And, right? There's no other people. Like <laughs> that's, that's very true. It's why you're probably not suicidal. All right. Yeah. Uh, stories of suicide should not be depicted as a means of coping with personal problems. Depicting consequences, especially negative consequences of non-fatal attempts or the devastating impact on family members and friends uh, when there is a successful suicide will serve to educate the public and help reduce imitative behavior. The term unsuccessful suicide implies that death is a desirable outcome and should not be used. Alternatives such as non-fatal suicide attempt are less open to misinterpretation. The phrase committed suicide should not be used because it implies criminality, contributing to a stigma and discouraging individuals individuals from seeking help. It should, in fact, be called a completed suicide. Undue repetition of stories are more likely to lead to imitative behaviors. Detailed discussion of methods used should be avoided because a step-by-step description may prompt vulnerable people to copy. Now, here's where we're going to go off the rails a little bit because we are going to talk about uh, some of suicides and suicide attempts in detail, but uh, we're going to take great care to link those stories with the consequences right. of their actions so that there's the this is the most responsible way to go about doing this uh, in our discussion prior to recording with Dr. Rob himself. 
that if there's a depiction of negative consequences to their actions, that it will help reduce imitative behavior. Oh, I can talk about all kinds of negative consequences. Precisely, which is why we have you here. Uh, Information about options for seeking help should be discussed. Advice from individual experts, Dr. Rob, should also be sought whenever possible. Experts can help dispel myths surrounding suicide and can offer advice about suicide prevention while recognizing and managing suicide risk. So that's what you're here for. Okay. All so, right. So what, Dr. Rob, if we have somebody who listens to this show and is not having a good time and right. feels like they should end things, what yeah. should they do if they have those suicidal Any thoughts? Suicidal right. impulse, yeah. Well, yeah. M- just about anywhere you can access emergency services. Uh, North America, the number is 911. It's triple zero in Australia. Different places have their own emergency numbers. Also, there are suicide uh, or crisis hotlines. If you're not sure if you're suicidal or if it's a crisis and uh, you want to get more information or talk to somebody, these can be found all over the place on the web. They're very easy to find. In fact, there's a resource called suicidepreventionlifeline.org. If you put that in, uh, it directs uh, everybody from all over North America to your closest uh, suicide prevention hotline. Uh-huh. The post for this episode is going to have a whole bunch of links for people mm-hmm. uh, to go to if they uh, think they need some help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, one thing that is uh, important to emphasize is that there actually is uh, a path out. Um, it doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always look like that. But um, I've probably not really ever met anyone who uh, hasn't been uh, able to be helped to some degree with uh, appropriate uh, mental health interventions Mm -hmm. to kind of reframe what's going on in their lives and uh, start to turn things around. Certainly in the course of listening to this episode, if anybody is hearing a particular story or uh, starts to feel uncomfortable or uh, starts to feel uh, an urge, uh, you should definitely turn the podcast off immediately and do any of the steps above that Dr. Rob just mentioned. Please. Contact a friend, a family member, a medical professional, even walk into a local hospital, an emergency room, or uh, uh, go online yeah. and talk to these hotline folks. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Reddit.com, which uh, is... Uh uh, it, it flips for me between a wonderful resource and a complete cesspool of human misery, uh-huh. uh, but it has a subreddit called Suicide Watch, which is at reddit.com slash r slash suicide watch, all lowercase, no spaces. And in there, if you're having suicidal feelings, you can just go post. You can be completely anonymous, and they are non-judgmental. They will talk about options. Uh, what about the trolls? The troll, there is a very strong mod community in our Suicide Watch. They will instantly delete any kind of trolling. Uh, the They've got a sidebar full of what seem like very reasonable rules. I asked Dr. Rob to take a look at it. It looks like the people running our Suicide Watch really know what they're talking about. They really care. Uh, and they seem to be handling it really, really well. It looks what? like a great little resource. Joe, maybe you're you're more uh, in tune with the internet than I am. Yeah. What kind of animal would you need to be to troll a Suicide Watch uh, message board? I don't know, but they exist. I'm That's sure. Like yeah. 13 years old. And think it's and have a pretty good life. Well, probably, uh-huh. probably close to suicidal yourself. But instead of hurting yourself, you want to hurt other people to try and make yourself feel uh, good. That's my guess. A like misery loves company type. There's something wrong with you, and you want to make other people hurt too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A misery loves more misery type. Yeah, I well, think so. It's actually uh, 
uh, sort of a tragic but uh, important phenomenon. If you think about, say, uh, Retea Parsons in Nova Scotia, uh, one of the issues there was the use of the internet to continue to spread uh, sort of innuendo about her rumors and uh, imagery. Uh, she was the uh, uh, young girl that was uh, was raped, and um, and then a video of the actual assault got out. Video and and still photos. I don't know about video, but I think there were there were definitely there was definitely some imagery. Mm-hmm. And in a way, the um, e- elements of the community um, turned on her quite viciously, which uh, is unfortunately not uncommon. And these aren't um, necessarily evil people doing this. These are just regular teenagers. So there's something about the distance, the remove of the internet and... Um, that all, anonymity. Anonymity, yeah. yeah. Um, that seems to uh, lower people's guard or their sense of empathy. Yeah. One of the uh, first uh, internet-related suicides I heard of happened... Probably around 97, there was, uh, back in the days of Internet Relay Chat, there was a guy in a chat room who said, I'm, uh, that's it, I, you know, I've had enough, I'm ending it all, I'm taking mm-hmm. pills, I'm drinking alcohol. And he was actually uh, doing that while he was in the chat, and everyone in the chat room egged him on. Yeah, take more, take more. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And he, he yeah. ended up dead, uh, and later... Uh, this this all came out, yeah. And despite that being sort of intensely examined, the phenomenon itself hasn't really gone away. Right. Mm-hmm. It's still. Do we have a name for this phenomenon? Have uh, we called it? Have we? Penny Arcade has created a name for this. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's it's called John Gabriel's Greater Internet Fuckwad Theory. Ah. Okay. Uh, the, the formula is normal person plus anonymity plus audience equals total fuckwad. Oh well, that's probably a pretty accurate depiction. Yeah. Uh, let's see what kind of fuckwads we are. I've got a pop quiz. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what would you all say? A uh, torn. Let's start with you. Okay. What do you think is the uh, the country in which most suicides occur annually? The country in the with the most suicides mm-hmm. would have to be the country with the most amount of bridges. Uh huh. Like the way you're thinking. So I'm gonna say uh, Madison County. Who has a song about bridges? Madison County. No, I don't know. Oh. London bridges? London oh, yeah. bridges falling down. That's a, that's just one big bridge though that they have over there. Um, America. What about you, uh, Joe? You got a thing? I'm going to guess the country with the most people is China. Bing, bing, bing. Joe hits it. In China, someone takes his or her own life on average every two minutes. China accounts for nearly. That's impossible. A... That's once you take your life once. You can't take it again. <laughs> China accounts for nearly a quarter of global total suicides with between 250,000 and 300,000 suicides a year. Wow. I They're... think it's basically just a function of being the most populous society. Yeah. Uh, you have the most suicides. But remember, they're only about one-seventh of global population. So this is where other factors get in. Uh, there's different cultural attitudes towards suicide. In the mm-hmm. West, we're very um, anti-suicide, suicide resistant, whereas... And in, every life is sacred, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and, and these are these are sort of aspects of uh, I think um, Judeo-Christian culture that still permeate. Um, it's a sin. Western culture to, to some degree. There's definitely some stigma around it. Whereas, in say, uh, say a place like like Japan, um, it's not that uncommon for mm-hmm. for for suicide to occur and for the. 
the local folks to go, well, sure, that makes sense. I mean, this was an aspect of samurai culture for centuries. Well, this leads into my second question. Uh, Worldwide, which country has the highest rate of suicide? So taking the absolute number question out of the equation, which is China. The per capita. The per capita capita rate of suicide. In fact, it's done in suicides per 100,000 is how these are measured. Oh, what if there's a country with less than 100,000 people? But then you multiply up. <laughs> oh, if, okay. if you only have 20,000 people, you multiply by five. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Torin is a good Kevin when Kevin's leading the episode. <laughs> what do you think, Dr. Rob? You want to weigh in on which country has the per, per capita highest yeah. rate of suicide? Um, if I had to, I mean, thinking it over, I know J- Japan's certainly going to be up there. Is it going to be number one? Um, I'm wondering about that. I'm also wondering about uh, places like, um, say, the current current Russia, where there mm. are just such a vortex of an, an enormous crushing socioeconomic factors, that's definitely going to mm, be yeah. a big driver. Or mm-hmm. I'm also thinking Middle East, where you've got a lot of young men who don't have any hope of, you know, getting anywhere in their lives. I mean, some of them are becoming suicide bombers. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how many of those might just decide not to do the bombing part and just end it all. I think you guys are, you guys are up in your heads too much. You have I, to be like me. I'm gonna React s- with your gut. I'm going to say suicide's a land. Okay. Which is right next to Swaziland. Uh-huh. Swaziland. Okay, I like the way you're thinking. That's number one. Uh, what about you, Dr. Rob? You got a, uh, an educated guess? I'm gonna, uh, I think I'm going to go with Japan. I'm going to say Antarctica because somebody there probably killed themselves. And when <laughs> you do the time. math, that <laughs> one totally time. sways it. I, I love the mathematical way he's gone with this. Japan is right up there, but the highest by a wide margin is Hungary. Oh, yeah. Them. Amongst oh, okay. all males, uh, it averages 59.9 suicides per 100,000. And amongst females, they average 21.4 per 100,000, which is higher than the male uh, average in a lot of other countries. I was listening to a Freakonomics podcast, and they were talking about how in Hungary it is almost kind of like a, a courageous thing to do mm-hmm. if you become like a burden on society. To take yourself out. Yeah, like yeah, if you're older or, or whatever. Because like uh, in, in these, uh, the statistical analysis that I read, like, uh, I mean, Hungary is two and a half times further along than the next highest one, which I think might be Japan. So uh, you're in the right neighborhood, but Hungary is like running away with it. Interesting. Uh, Congratulations, Hungary. You're number one. You're your number, number one. one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, highest rate of suicide by month. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, which month do which do month do the most suicides occur? See, mm. we all think it's the holiday season. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's a myth, but I think that yeah, uh, it's still probably winter though. I'm gonna say January. Okay, Doctor Rob, do you have an opinion? Uh, most suicides occur in the spring. Now, which oh. month? I agree with Doctor Rob. Which <laughs> <laughs> now, which month specifically? I'm going to. Um, it's going to come down between March and April. It's when the uh, it's when the days are getting longest, fastest. Oh, it's uh-huh. it's March. April, April, because what what's happening is that uh, a lot of individuals with mood disorders have seasonal variation. It's very very common, mm-hmm. and individuals who have had seasonal affect disorder and are coming out of depression in the spring when the days are getting longer and their chronobiology is uh, under sensitive Uh impact from uh, increasing daylight, develop what we call um, mixed episodes, which is uh, an episode which combines depressive and manic symptoms at the same time. So you could be experiencing low mood, loss of interests, hopelessness, and increased energy. 
and yep. having lots of ideas ah. and plans. It's uh. a very lethal mix. Oh, interesting. And that's um, well, that. it is. It, it is in fact March and or April uh, that basically vacillates from year to year between those go. two months. They are consistently shown to have the highest suicide rate, four to six percent higher than the average for the rest of the year. Christ, Christmas season is actually well below average. So yeah, that I, is a pure myth. I would guess people kind of hold on. They, they get to see their families. They, yeah, I don't you know, even know how that myth got started. Like, how does a myth like that get started? One time Santa tried to kill himself. <laughs> it's, it's because you're looking for it around Christmas. So when uh, it happens, it you remember it. And it seems more tragic. Mm-hmm. And you, you remember those so that you think that's when it happens. Uh, what age range has the highest rate of suicide? Torn. Uh, seven months. Oh, really? Jumping out of the cribs. Seven months. Uh-huh. All right, okay. That was a difficult time for me. Yeah, wrapping, wrapping their swaddling Wait, claws when, on the necks. Well, how old do you have to be before you start before you stop sucking on your mom's tit? Like what is that age one range? One and a half? <laughs> one and a half. One and a half. All right. Okay. It's just like I lost the boob. There's no There's reason no, to go on. Exactly. I'm gonna say it's gotta do with puberty, probably uh thirteen to fifteen, somewhere around there. Uh Dr. Rob, you gotta have it. He knows the on answer. Yeah. Suicide rates increase in an absolute fashion as we age so uh, you're more likely to to see 70 year olds committing suicides than 60 year olds 80 year olds more likely than 70 year olds it's uh, it's a function of uh, increased age in the u.s males 75 plus are three times more likely to commit suicide than males 15 to 24 Uh, in hungary the rate of suicide amongst 75 plus is 196.6 per 100,000 people i thought he was gonna say it was 196 percent like no. twice as many <laughs> 75-year-olds than exists. there are. Yeah, they go out and kill a 75-year-old and <laughs> right. then commit suicide. Uh, yeah, 196.6 per 100K. Just remember, the average male suicide rate for all ages is 59.9. So almost four times as high in the 75-plus range. Uh, does divorce increase the likelihood of suicide, Joe? Probably. Mm-hmm. I would guess so. I was pretty bummed. I'm still here, though. All right. How much did I like my lo- my wife? <laughs> oh, you got to get into specifics. Uh, well, I'm thinking on average. This is a societal question. I'll agree with Joe. I got a 50-50 shot. <laughs> well, it's actually true and it isn't true. Because, a trick question. Yes, it is a trick question because divorced and separated men are two and a half times more likely to commit suicide. However, does not seem to increase in women at all. The averages in care. divorced women they don't give a shit. stay completely even, Stephen. Divorced men, the suicide rates jump by two and a half to three times. So it's uh yeah, trick trick question there. Hmm. That's a, <laughs> trickaroo. Uh which professional discipline is most likely to commit suicide? Professional discipline? Yes. Which occupation? Don't start with me. Oh. Oh, okay, Joe, go. Go, Joe. Oh, I th- I thought I knew this. Okay. It's something kind of surprising, isn't it? Is it like architect? Uh, that's my yeah. guess. Architect. architect, okay. Yeah, well, they can they can design something that they can hang themselves that's from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, I think we like talked about this before. Bridge makers or, or bathtub <laughs> makers or something because they want to oh, really? feel How like about they, got, they got- How yeah, about noose makers? I want to get and, value yeah, and, out of this- uh, and, and razor blade manufacturers. Artisanal. How about that? No, uh, uh, Dr. Rob, <laughs> I know you know the answer to this one. Well, um, it kind of depends how you slice it. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Don't say t- slice. Oh. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. In <laughs> terms of overall highest risk, you're looking at physicians and dentists. But if you subslice it by specialty, mm-hmm. then within medicine, uh, by far the highest rates are amongst uh, psychiatrists and anesthesiologists. Wow. In fact, psychiatrists, anesthesiologists, and ophthalmologists are the greatest risk of suicide. Ophthalmologists! With pediatrics having the least amount of risk. 
Mm. Uh, doctors are twice as likely to kill themselves as the general population. And strangely, uh, female physicians are more likely to commit suicide than their male counterparts in direct contradiction to the general Is population. Is it because mm. doctors know too much? <laughs> Well, there is a quality to that, isn't there? Or or that they're just better at doing it? Oh, maybe. Maybe. Uh psychiatry in in particular is a very You got to emo- talk to all those people. It's a very oh, well, it's, God. it's an emotionally uh demanding right. uh specialty and mm-hmm. you are dealing in, uh, with a lot of situations that are quite emotionally uh draining. Um and you're expect the expectation is that you're Yoda, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um but that you're a cure all that you can yeah, you know, yeah, solve yeah, everybody's yeah. problem. But that course, speak like this you do. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and um I think what ends up uh what ends up happening in a lot of cases is um if you're in a situation that's kind of a constant grind, it's gonna uh, it's gonna wear away at you after a while. And it's like that one drip of water on the rock that, you know, yeah. after a thousand years, like, wears to nothing. Right, right, right. So if you're like a part-time doctor, no problem. <laughs> well, it's, if that's, that's sort of one strategy that uh, some physicians take, yeah, in terms of uh, managing work-life stress and yeah, balance. Limit their exposure. But ophthalmologists. Uh, yeah, ophthalmologists, ophthalmologists. That one was way out of nowhere. Pediatrics, you're hanging out with some of the cutest things in the world. That would I mean, make me want to kill myself in day oh, one. Oh, there you go. Hanging out with babies all the time. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, which U.S. state has the highest suicide rate? U.S. state. Yeah. Mm. I can start with you, Dr. Rob, because you don't, Nevada. don't inherently know this. Nevada. No. Which U.S. Gosh, which U.S. state has the uh, highest, highest rate of unemployment rate. and poverty? Mm. That would be my guess. So I'm, um, I'm going to go with something like well, Mississippi is the lowest uh, um, economically and educationally. Right. So it's gonna, I think it's going to be something, you know, either on the Gulf Coast, something like Mississippi or Arkansas. Okay. Uh, All right. So you're going with the, uh, the Dirty South. Joe, what did you think? I'm going to say Nevada because of Las Vegas. All right. I'm going to say Midwest. Like uh, Nebraska? Whatever states are in the Midwest, <laughs> I don't know. All right. <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. Joe hits it with Nevada, consistently leading suicide rate statistics. <laughs> Highest regional rates are generally those of the Rocky Mountain and West Coast areas, with the South showing the lowest rate, Oh-ho. with the exception of Florida. Oh, because mm-hmm. of the alligator. Uh, <laughs> suicide by alligator? Suicide, assisted suicide. I hadn't heard of that one. Which day of the week are most suicides committed? Oh, not on, the, not on Sunday, because that's the day of rest. Uh-huh. Well, it'd be a pretty long rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah, true. that's the ultimate Oh, God. Uh-huh. Day of the week. Uh-huh. They, they don't know. Yes, of course they know when suicides are committed. They totally it's, can keep statistics it's not on hard. this. That's, this is not a difficult thing to measure. <laughs> no, this is the easiest thing in the world to measure. <laughs> Wait, did, did, you well, write down, did you write down the day we found that body? Oh, fuck, I should have done that. Oh. Not, not the easiest thing in the world to measure, but, but it's, it's certainly easy. measurable. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty, yeah. Yeah. pretty yeah. easy. God darn, pick a day. You only got seven days to pick from. Tell me what. I don't like Mondays. Tell me what. That's my guess, too. Mondays. Monday, Monday, uh, Dr. It's not going to be Mondays. Are you going to go with? Like well, Mondays. case of the Monday. Monday's the highest day of the week for uh, fatal heart attacks, usually in mid-morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of suicides, I'm going to go with Sunday, and that's just intuitional. I don't have any specific knowledge that is, I'm drawing on. Is that uh, maybe unfortunately, based? the boobs have it. It's Monday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Monday. We call it the Garfield effect. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. I made that up. Uh, Monday is the day in which most suicides occur. Saturday is the fewest. 
weekend. Well, that shows. People have high hopes for their Saturdays. So, so, you, so I guess I split the difference. Mm-hmm. So you go, yay, weekend. I'll, I'll have a chance. And at the end of it, you go, uh, All right, let's talk about some work. specific methods of committing suicide. Okay. Uh, risk cutting. Uh, one manage, if one manages to slit their wrist well enough to excessively bleed, the person will suffer the effects of cardiac arrhythmia. That means you're bad at writing songs. <laughs> Bad at writing love from, songs. From yeah. your heart, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. okay. Uh, Dr. Rob, what's cardiac arrhythmia? That's when the normally steady, stable rhythm of your heart starts becoming erratic because Lots the, of blood. the conduction system's not getting enough uh-huh. uh, blood supply. Now, is that worse than having your blood come out of your body? Well, it's a cause and effect. They're both pretty thing. bad. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, hypovolemia? Oh, that's when, <laughs> that's when uh, the rodents get so cold. I'm not getting any of the your voles. references. Voles. Oh, voles. You got this voles in oh, there. Okay. All right. Tiny rodents. Wow. You just yeah. out Kevin to Kevin. Okay. Uh, Dr. Rob, what's hypovolemia? That's essentially loss of blood volume. You've got about, you know, an adult has about six liters of circulating blood. Do I? And <laughs> as, uh, that's, you, you, as you bleed out, you don't have enough uh, blood in you anymore, no matter how hard your heart pumps yeah. to keep your vital organs uh with an adequate yeah, that's, that's, flow. That's kind of a no-duh when you've slit your wrists. Uh, these, of course, lead to circulatory shock, circulatory collapse, and cardiac arrest. A person who survives these outcomes will often have loss of control and sensation in their hands, depending on the extent of damage caused to tendons, muscles, and nerves. So um, if you're going to try this method, so much for your typist career. Ooh. You can throw that out the window. Uh the method of jumping from a great height, the act of jumping from altitudes, a window, balcony, or roof of a high-rise building, a cliff, a dam, or bridge, etc. Uh, this will result in severe consequences if, uh, if this is a non-fatal attempt, such as paralysis, organ damage, bone fractures. In Hong Kong, jumping is the most common method of suicide, accounting for 52.1% of all reported cases in 2006. Method of firearms. Generally, a bullet will be aimed at point-blank range, often at the head or less commonly into the mouth, under the chin, or at the chest. The use of firearms in suicides range from less than 10% in Australia to 50.5% in the U.S., no, where it is the most 100%. common method. Well, there's just guns just littering the streets there. Yeah, yeah, that's like all the men and some of the women. So, yeah, precisely. So let me jump in here on some of these because some of these are they, they would have consequences you wouldn't necessarily think of in the first place. So somebody who tries to do it, say, by um, slitting a wrist and actually does get found in profound uh, circulatory shock mm-hmm. and is resuscitated, often what um, they'll suffer is a, an anoxic brain injury, meaning insufficient um, oxygen supply to the brain. Right. And you can actually... Um, come out of that suicide attempt with permanent brain damage. Right. Um, mm. And all bets are off as to what that's going to be. That could be loss of higher function. That could be loss of memory, uh, loss of language. That could be sort of, a, you know, essentially any kind of acquired cognitive impairment that uh, you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of, uh, that probably runs almost as a thread through all of these methods because, you know, if you're jumping from a height, I mean, obviously massive head trauma right. is a p- possibility. Yeah. Uh, firearms, in fact, I'm just getting to this now. Uh, fail, uh, a, a non-fatal attempt by firearm may result in severe chronic pain, reduced cognitive ability, reduced motor function, subdural hematoma, foreign bodies in the head. Loss of face. Mm-hmm. 
Pneumocephalus? Pneumocephalus. What is that? Air in the brain. Air in the brain. Cephalus meaning head. And pneumo meaning wind. Meaning, yeah, gas. How how is this different than being an airhead? Worse. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Choose airhead. Worse. Uh, uh, Leaks in your cerebrospinal fluid. Mm Mm-hmm. I think you want to keep that from leaking. Uh, what say you, Dr. Rob? Medical opinion. You definitely want to keep that from leaking because mm-hmm. if you tear the dura, which is the coating around your, or the, the sort of the sac that your uh, central nervous system sits in, then that opens up a constant chronic channel for infection. Ooh. And you don't want, you don't want central nervous, nervous system infections. Mm. What would a central nervous system infection do to you? Well, it could um, leave you paralyzed, it could leave you blind, it could leave you deaf, it could leave you in agonizing pain for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. It could be sort of a recurrent problem if it's a difficult repair, and the kinetic energy of missiles through the skull can often make things very difficult to repair. Uh, In fact, for specific temporal bone-directed bullets, you can suffer in a non-fatal firearm attempt temporal lobe abscesses? Temporal lobe abscess. What is that? What do I use my temporal lobe for? (laughs) If if you've had an abscess... Keeping time. I know this one. Use your temporal lobe to keep time. It's like your internal clock. Yes? No? Mm. No. No? Okay. I'm wrong on that one. What is your temporal lobe? Well, your temporal lobe is where your hippocampus lives, and your hippocampus is responsible for... That is the horse mermaid. No, no, no. no It's the horse mermaid. No no talking now. No talking. (laughs) It's responsible for encoding and retrieval of long-term memories, so you can severely compromise your ability to... Well, essentially, you can end up with amnesia. Yeah. Um, it's bullet, also bullet uh, enforced amnesia, right? Uh-huh. It's where your amygdala lives, which pairs, which sort of samples incoming sensory data for emotional relevance, uh-huh. and it also helps the hippocampus encode emotionally charged memories. Uh, hearing and speech are intimately connected with the uh, temporal lobe as well. Seems like it's one of the more important lobes. It's pretty important uh, for temporal bone directed bullets. It can cause meningitis. How would it cause meningitis? Well, you tear through the meninges, meninges. And, uh, and all sorts of nasty organisms track in behind the bullet. Oh, well, there you go. Through the open wound. Uh, you can cause aphasia. Loss of speech or loss of language. Yeah, brain damage causing the loss of communication. One cannot speak or understand speech sometimes. Uh, hemianopsia. Oh, Jesus. Hemianopsia? Oh, there you go. Something to do with blood. Yeah, definitely got something to do with blood. That's a kind of blindness that occurs in half of your visual field. If the bullet sort of severs part of the optic nerve, depending on whether it severs the, depending on the relationship between the optic chiasmus and the bullet, but essentially you can either end up partially or fully blind from mm-hmm. a uh, temporal lobe injury. Or, uh, sorry, from a temporal uh, bone bullet. Directed bullet, yeah. yeah. Uh, how about hemiplegia? Half, par- half your body's paralyzed. Oh, so it's like a hemisphere kind of thing. It's not right. Well, it's yeah. not okay. hemo. It's hemi. But hemi, yeah. again, the important thing to to uh, these 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 are some of the more exotic consequences. But yeah. you know, the reality is, you can end up blind. You can end up completely paralyzed. You can end up with uh, brain infections. You will almost certainly have severe facial damage. You may end up only shooting your face off. Well, it's interesting that you bring this up because I actually have a photo here if everyone wants to direct their uh, attention here. We'll put this image up on CossackSodaPodcast.com. Advance warning. NSFW. Most of the stuff we're going to put up on the website will probably be 
very graphic. So if you don't want to see graphic things, never come to our website stay again. Stay away, stay away for the rest of our lives. Yeah. But this is a, this is a photo of a gentleman in Eastern Europe who attempted uh, suicide with a firearm. He placed the uh, weapon under his chin. And the bullet actually traveled up through the inside of his face and exited through his forehead. Right. And mm-hmm. this is a non-fatal attempt. He has survived, but uh, he will obviously be a mangled. Presumably, not have life. gone through any part of his brain. Then, um, who knows? It could. It could. It could hit the prefrontal lobes. But there is quite a bit of distance in terms. Well, in, in medical speaking terms, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, centimeters. Between your face and your, your brain. brain. In fact, uh, uh, one of my neurosurgeon lecturers in medical school described the face essentially, from his point of view, as a shock absorber for the brain. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> what I use my, it for. I'm going to call my face my shock absorber from now on, yeah, right? My yeah. shock and awe absorber. And the, yeah, I, uh, I've, I've seen, I've lost count of the number of uh, non fatal gunshot wounds with lethal intent that have left individuals in far worse straits than they were in when they were contemplating right. the uh, the gunshot. Right. And, this, and it's important to emphasize most suicide attempts are actually unsuccessful and a significant minority of suicide attempts lead to permanent, various kinds of permanent injury. Right. Separate studies in Canada. Oh, this is actually, uh, I'm not. We're not going to talk about this in great length in pop culture for a number of different reasons. But you know, uh, Ars face from the Preacher comic book series right. uh, had a mangled face as a result of a failed suicide attempt. Uh, face that kind of looked like a puckered asshole. Right. Which mm-hmm. is why he was Hence called Ars face from that point forward. Uh, separate studies in Canada and Australia conducted in conjunction with restrictive firearms legislation demonstrated that while legislation caused a decrease in firearm suicide, other methods such as hanging increased. Right. In Australia, the overall rate of suicide continued to increase after firearm restrictions were introduced, only decreasing when measures specifically aimed to provide support for those intent on suicide were implemented. So there you That's go. where the, uh, they moved to koalas. Oh, it's suicide by koala. You're yeah, right. yeah, you You're... just take away their eucalyptus, and they'll gouge your eyes out. They will. They'll claw you to bits. Run at them. Uh, the method of hanging, using some type of rope or cord to form a noose around the throat with the opposite end secured to some fixture. There are two types of hanging, the short drop and the long drop, and this has nothing to do with the height of the individual. Uh, in a short drop, death takes much longer, as death is the result of oxygen deprivation to the brain. That's the long drop? That's a short, 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 short drop. Asphyxiation. You yeah. essentially choke to death. You just, okay. you just hang there on a thing tighter oh, than your neck okay. and you can't breathe. Okay, it's not length of time. No. It's the length of the, yeah, length the apparatus. The yes. Yeah. Those who survive may suffer from cerebral ischemia. And this is not about making plans to try it again. Ischemia. What, uh, what, what is uh, cerebral ischemia? That's, that's what E-S-C-H, isn't it? I-S-C-H. Insufficient blood flow to the brain. Because when you are essentially hanging by a rope, you've cut off your carotid arteries, yeah. which are the main pipelines of blood up to your brain. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, anoxic brain injury can be the consequence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With, so all, all bets these, are off. All these other consequences that we've talked about, blindness, loss of hearing, loss of communication, all that's all possible. Yeah, except in the case of ischemia, it's a more global injury. So um, Everyone across the world suffers from it? <laughs> all the neurons across your brain suffer <laughs> oh, from okay. it. Oh, yeah. That right. globe. Uh, the long drop is the method used in judicial hanging. The executioner calculates the drop distance required to break the subject's neck based on weight, uh, height, build, and speed of descent. 
with the knot of the noose placed to the left side of the subject's neck under under the jaw, the jolt to the neck at the end of the jaw breaks or dislocates a neck bone called the axis, which in turn severs the spinal cord. Blood pressure drops down to nothing in about a second, and the subject immediately loses consciousness. Brain death takes several minutes to occur, and complete death can take up to 15 or 20 minutes. But the person at the end of the rope most likely, and I highlighted most likely, because we don't know for sure, can't feel or experience any of it. Right. Considering a suicidal person is not an experienced executioner, miscalculating the length of rope and speed of descent may result in survivors suffering from one or more fractures of the cervical vertebra, which may cause paralysis and brain damage. Except for all the executioners who committed suicide. Oh, yeah. Because that is also a thing. That is a thing. Uh, Let's not forget that um, one of the much more common outcomes of a failed hanging attempt is going to be damage to the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. The axis is the bone off your second cervical vertebrae, and it sits sort of at the top of your spinal column. Mm-hmm. What you get now? Um, and it's in, in relation to your C1, which is called the uh, a- atlas. And this mm-hmm. is the atlantoaxial joint. And there's a certain type of a fracture you can get from certain types of accidents. This can happen, say, a uh, high-speed motorcycle crash when the helmet... Uh, whips forward or whips backward and um, pulls the head back, you can get what's called a hangman's fracture. And these can result in uh, devastating neurological injuries. So this can be... um, I don't like any of my injuries to start with the word devastating. Right. So Those are my least favorite kind of injuries. You could end up quadriplegic, uh, meaning uh, no motor power in uh, arms or legs. You can end up pentaplegic, meaning that you now... I didn't even know that was a thing. It's definitely a thing, where you need a respirator to breathe for you. Ugh. And, or about... you can end up with, say, loss of arms, legs, uh, half. It's, it's, again, it's, it's random, simply because of the nature of the, um, nature of the injury and you the force. Could, you can end up hemiplegic and have one side, and then you can only go in one direction. You're just constantly right. going in a circle. You could become a septiplegic. What is the person next to you loses two parts of their body? Ah, I see. It rubs off by osmosis. Uh, Hanging is the most common method of suicide in pre-industrial societies and more common in rural areas. It is also common in situations where other materials are not readily available, such as prisons. Mm. Drug overdoses, taking medication in doses greater than the indicated levels or in combination that will cause harmful effects. Average fatality rate for overdoses in the U.S. is estimated to be 1.8%. Ooh, taking the pills, not reliable. No. Yeah, Yeah, you get about a 98% chance of failing. But failure doesn't mean you bounce back and are completely healthy. Yeah, uh, barbiturates are commonly used for suicide, but they are becoming increasingly difficult to acquire. Uh, analgesic overdose attempts are now the most common due to availability of over-the-counter substances. Death is very uncertain, and those who survive can expect convulsions, comas, severe organ damage, amongst other things I'm sure you're about to tell us, Dr. Rob. Yeah, the main uh, organ of uh, attack in a Tylenol overdose is the liver. And if somebody that somebody comes into the emergency room who's taken a Tylenol overdose, there are the emergency physicians will immediately begin uh, protocols with with essentially antidotes that protect the liver from Tylenol. Mm-hmm. And there are um, why does Tylenol hate liver so much? I mean, I hated liver as a kid, but my mom put bacon and onions on it; and it was fine. Why does Tylenol hate liver? Well, so Tylenol is metabolized by the liver. And as often happens, some of the intermediate products of metabolism are far more toxic than oh. the basic products themselves. And when mm. you're taking 
Tylenol at pharmacologic doses, that's fine because your liver just mops that stuff up, no problem. But if you've taken a massive Tylenol overdose and then it goes through the first pass of metabolism. We've taken as much Tylenol as we can. We can't handle no more. Right. Into uh, toxic products. Then those through second pass uh, metabolism actually cause uh, hepatocyte necrosis, which means death of liver cells, death of the cells that are trying to metabolize them. And often people with um, Tylenol overdose from a suicide attempt end up in uh, liver failure, which is uh, very slow, Uh uh, very agonizing, and you're not eligible for placement on the transplant list. Yeah, because, of course, they're just worried you're going to do it again to a perfectly good liver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that can linger for months, that can linger for years. All bets bets are off. Uh, We've got a a question from our researcher, Corey. Uh, At an infamous mental institution near where I live, people say there is a floor for permanent patients who overdosed on prescription medication and can no longer function without constant supervision and assistance. It could be an urban legend, but could Dr. Rob confirm or deny any effects of psychotropic ODs resulting in severe mental impairment? In terms of pure psychological impairment, no. What's going to end up happening is there's going to be organ damage. And if somebody needs uh, is fully dependent on nursing care, they're not going to be in a psychiatric hospital. They're going to be in a nursing home or perhaps in a rehabilitation unit attempting to get whatever function they can get back. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't end up in a psychiatric hospital because it's, it's just not the right kind of setting. All right, so urban legend, Corey, there you got it. Uh, suicide by cop. This is when an individual deliberately acts in a threatening way to provoke a lethal response from law enforcement. The most common scenario is to point a firearm at a police officer or an innocent person to reasonably provoke an officer to fire on them. Attacking with a knife, trying to run an officer over with a car, or trying to trigger a real or presumed explosive device are also variants of this. Death is uncertain, and additional consequences of a self-inflicted attempt by a firearm is a potential traumatizing experience for the officers involved. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, and everyone else on the scene. Yeah, forcing somebody to shoot you might have a negative impact on them. So before you try something like this, think about that for a second. Uh, Sergeant Rick Perrant of the Delta Police Department in his PhD thesis, Aspects of Police Use of Deadly Force in North America, the Phenomenon of Victim-Precipitated Homicide, researched 843 police shootings and determined that about 50% were victim-precipitated homicides. Interesting. That is a high number. That is a higher number than I would have guessed. I think we should disband the police force. That would stop victim-precipitated homicide for sure. Who's with me? Mm. Uh Nope. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense if you think about it, because if, say... those of us in the room mm-hmm. um, were... Two of us are going to die by well, no. cop? If, 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 if those of us in the room uh-huh. were given a directive by a police officer, we would probably immediately comply. Right. And that's what most people are going to do. So it's a particular subset of... A specific subset of individuals where uh, noncompliance ends up entering the picture. And one of the main drivers of noncompliance can certainly be acute uh, mental, mental disorder, yeah. hopelessness, helplessness, and um, with the you know, tragic consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to talk about self-immolation, but then I realized we talked about it at length in our Vietnam War episode about oh. uh, Tiang Duc, who lit himself on fire. So go back and check that out. The last uh, method that I want to talk about is the detergent technique. 
you heard of this, Dr. I don't Rob? think I've heard of this one. Uh, I haven't heard of this one specifically, but there's certainly no shortage of various poisons and concoctions that individuals try to kill themselves with very varying unpleasant uh, consequences. Right. Yeah, this is the mixing of household chemicals to produce a deadly hydrogen sulfide gas. It became a suicide fad in Japan in 2008. An estimated 500 Japanese men, women, and children took their lives in the first half of 2008, making it by far and away the most popular method used in that span. Crazy. They often followed instructions posted on several different Japanese websites. One site included an app... That would calculate the correct proportions of each ingredient based on room volume. Who's and, in uh, charge over there? And uh, it, this, the app also came with a PDF download of a ready-made warning sign to alert neighbors and emergency workers to the deadly gas hazard inside. It appears now that the trend has migrated to the U.S. I have a quote from a, uh, a health and safety officer. The normal response for an EMS is they're going to break open the window. And that's a pretty normal call. Someone unconscious inside a car or a room. Fortunately, so far everyone has left a note, which is pretty unusual and a good thing. Eventually, someone isn't going to leave a note. Right. Or someone's not going to see the note, right? This could just be, say, a family member coming home, uh, walking into the room. They're overcome by gas. They're dead, too. Mm -hmm. I never Um, see the notes. Or permanently injured. Or, again, you uh, come back from this because you, you end up getting rescued. You go to the hospital. You end up in a hyperbaric oxygen tank. And we're back to uh, anoxic brain injury again. Yeah. And another, and I mean, innocent bystanders is a pretty significant uh, negative consequence of somebody's actions if they're, you know, don't think about that beforehand. Single biggest risk from this sort of method. Also, uh, suicide by cop. Uh, It's a highly emotionally charged situation. There might be lots of people around. Nobody's aim is perfect. You might want to die by cop. The person behind you ends up getting shot in the head. Mm Mm-hmm. The so-called detergent suicide sparked considerable interest on the alt.suicide Usenet group, where people considering suicide share tips and tricks. One depressed man wrote of his plan to release hydrogen sulfide gas in his car while driving in the hope that he would lose lose consciousness and crash, making it look like an accident. He stated, I understand that the method smells, but I have found the stench of failure in my life as well. Other newsgroup users pointed out that his plan was risky for innocent bystanders. The man announced the following week that he had decided to abandon his plan and he'd rather live. He stated, With months of research, I have discovered that there is no easy or painless or quick way to die, so from here on out, I'm going to pick up the pieces of my life! Exclamation! Maybe you should too. Hmm. So he had a complete turnaround because somebody brought up the issue of innocent bystanders, which obviously he hadn't thought of up to that point. And the other important issue that... uh one thing that's never really honestly or fully disclosed on suicide websites is that a it's difficult uh b there's a very high chance of failure yeah that's and, what we're here for and c uh failure can often lead to you ending up in permanently in a much worse place uh debilitated then, condition some might say yeah and then the mm-hmm. other issue we haven't even really talked about at all mm-hmm. is the impact on uh, those left behind yeah, family members, friends, yeah. the person who finds you, the right. person who gets gassed by your detergent method. Yeah, I'm going to blame that song, Suicide is Painless. Suicide oh. is not painless. Mm-hmm. No, mm. no. Um, and in fact, uh, after an individual commits suicide, the uh, there's a permanently increased risk of suicide in their family members. In the history... Dona 
Uh, I've got a few factoids here from the history, just a few short notes. Now, what's the difference between a fact and a factoid? A factoid mm. is small and has not struck the Earth yet. Tiny okay. and tight, yeah. It's hurtling through space. That's right. The first suicide note is thought to have been written by an Egyptian 4,000 years ago. In his poems, he describes the pain of his existence and the attractions of death. It was translated into German in 1896 by Adolf Ehrman, who called it the dispute with his soul of one who is tired of life. Mm. The original is probably written somewhere between 2181 and 2040 BC. So before that, never happened. Oh, there, was just, there were just no notes. Undocumented. Oh, before, before, no notes. That, yeah. Yeah. before that, no suicide That's right. notes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Somebody had to first invent writing mm-hmm. to, before you could invent Or the, the notes that there were just simply haven't survived to yeah. modernity. Yeah. Like email, it's very hard to accurately depict emotion in cave drawings. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. cave drawings are really just emojis, right? Are there any cave drawings of cavemen with spears through their heads? <laughs> Although that could be just a comedian. Yeah. Wild and uh. crazy cavemen! <laughs> Hegesius, uh, 320 to 280 BC, was known as the death persuader or the advocate of death and belonged uh. to a minor school of Greek philosophy named Cyreniacs, which advocated an early version of hedonism. Death persuader totally sounds like a Marvel supervillain. It, it totally does. Yeah. Hegesius's lectures prompted so many listeners to commit suicide that he was eventually forbidden to speak. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that would be the death of me. About uh, five years ago, there was actually a really psychopathic nurse online would hang around suicide chat forums and was particularly, uh, unfortunately, particularly adept at convincing suicidal adolescents to, to do it. And he would give them advice on how to do it. And he was actually a nurse in real life? Yeah. Yeah. God, this is just that whole, like, I can't wait to a Bad Doctors episode about the people that are actually attracted to the medical field because of the horrible things they can do to people. Mm-hmm. Who will we get on to be the expert for that? Because it won't be Dr. Rob. No. Because no. he's not good at that part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Roman gladiators would sometimes thrust wooden sticks or spears down their throats or force their heads into the spokes of moving carts so they could choose their own time of death rather than oh. another person's imposed time and way of dying. Oh. oh. Wow. See that? I can understand. Throwing your head in the moving spokes uh, well, of a Well, killing car? yourself rather than having to participate in this gladiatorial killing sport. thing. Look, yeah. if I'm going to die, uh, you're not going to make a profit off it. Yeah, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, I guess that's the way you can look at it. Like, oh, I'm giving, I'm really sticking it to your investment. It's, and like I guess, vandal, it's like vandalism. And I'm guessing if you get stabbed by a spear and then lost, you're going to suffer a lot there. And it's with like, that, they think it's going to be faster. It's like which, really, as we've learned, it might not be. Yeah. It's like a really grody passive aggra- uh, passive resistance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not quite passive resistance. Uh-huh. Many cultures have prohibited normal burial for people who've committed suicide, although restrictions varied widely according to time and place. A common practice in England until 1823 was to bury a suicidal person at night in a crossroad with a stake driven through the heart. Oh, so kind of like vampire. Sounds like a yeah. vampire thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In France, the suicide's body was dragged through the streets and then hanged from the public gallows. Weird. Well, that- in Prussia, early laws required the victim to be buried under the gallows. Oh, so you commit suicide, then they bury you under where they hang like murderers. That's right, yeah. I don't really get the connection. But. Uh, no. I, it's just a disrespect, I guess, mm. to encourage other people not to do it, Yes, yeah, I, I guess under the gallows is the opposite of hallowed ground. There you go. Uh-huh. Russian- it's gallowed ground. <laughs> there you go. I do like alliteration. Or rhyming. <laughs> Russian poet Sergei Esenin, 1895 to 1945, wrote an entire poem in his own blood that served as his suicide note. Oh, wow. How long was this poem? I was about to say, it had to be an epic poem for you to die from it. Oh, those Russians. (laughs) 
I've got a write up here on. I bet you it was. Okay, thanks. Bye. Oh, yeah. Oh, think, yeah. You think, was it that tiny? And then the e on, e on the by kind of trails off because yeah. he's losing yeah. consciousness from all the blood. <laughs> wasn't there, there's a there's a show that did that? Where, oh, it was uh, it was uh, the Simpsons, wasn't uh, Sideshow Bob writing? Oh, that's and, right. And furthermore, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Yeah, he's right. In the second century, the Roman orator Polemon of Laodicea found himself crippled by the quote king's disease. We know what that is, isn't that? Uh, we talked about that, and I can't remember what it is. is isn't it like the very it, ancient version of Lou Gehrig's? Is it, is it tuberculosis? Is it Polemon of Laodicea? I know hemophilia in modern times is... Gout. Gout. That's ah. right. We did. I know the we talked about disease. that. Uh, which forced him to live in constant pain. Polemon yeah. eventually decided it wasn't worth carrying on and resolved to end it all. At the age of 65, he ordered his servants to shut him up in the family tomb and leave him there to die. What? Trapped, yes. Trapped in a dark chamber, surrounded by the corpses of his ancestors, Polemon slowly starved to death. There had to have been a better way. This would have been a bit different story if it was Pokemon of Lodachia. <laughs> Polemon. One, just one letter, completely it's, different story. Uh, and the, That's true. The One's side, PG, the other one is not. The side irony, just before passing away, he evolved to his next form. Mm-hmm. Marcus Porcius Cato Utisensis, oh. more commonly known as Cato the Younger or Cato Minor. Let's call him that. Let's, I'm a, yeah. Oh, Cato Minor. Like, uh, that's about, kind of a jab, isn't it? A Cato little, Kalen? Cato the Younger sounds good. Cato Minor, I don't... He probably named himself Cato the Younger, and his dad called him Cato Minor. Yeah. It's Junior. Cato Jr. Come yeah. on, Junior. Or maybe he just liked digging things. He was musical family? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he was a politician and statesman in the late Roman Republic and a follower of the Stoic philosophy. A noted orator, he was famous for his stubbornness, his immunity to bribes, his moral integrity, oh. and distaste for the ubiquitous corruption of the period. Mm-hmm. So, a.k.a. No Fun Joe. He's a rabble-rouser. Yeah, no kidding. As opposed to me, Fun Joe. <laughs> yeah. Cato, unwilling to live in a world led by Caesar and refusing even implicitly to grant Caesar the power to pardon him, huh. he committed suicide by stabbing himself with his own sword. Hmm. Wow. Here's, stick it to you, Caesar, by sticking it to myself. Something seems wrong with this equation. That's an insult. That is an insult. Plutarch wrote about it. Uh, how, how would Plutarch sound? Uh, oh, <laughs> like, I don't like know. Pluto? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Cato did not immediately die of the wound. I, that's not even Pluto. I don't think but that's I how Pluto Plutarch just said bark. Oh, that's right. I Pluto was thinking of Goofy. Oh, yeah, you're thinking I goofy. was doing Goofy. Yeah, They're yeah. both dogs. Pluto was like, oh, yeah. I'll do, I'll do Pluto. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> Translation, Cato did not immediately die of the wound, but struggling, fell off the bed, and throwing down a little mathematical table that stood by, Ooh. made such a noise that the servants hearing it cried out. And immediately his son and all his friends came into the chamber where seeing him lie weltering in his own blood, great parts of his bowels out of his body, but himself still alive and able to look at them, they all stood in horror. Oh, God. Like, he spilled his bowels and is still alive. Uh, He's looking at him. This is the worst of all the disembowelings. This... Negative consequences. Yes. The physician went to him and would have put in his bowels, which were not pierced, and sewed up the wound. But Cato, recovering himself and understanding the intention, thrust away the physician, plucked out his own bowels, and tearing open the wound immediately expired. Oh, Oh, no, you don't. You're not doing that. (laughs) Good Lord. Can you imagine the kind of fortitude it would take? To look at your bowels in your own hands and then tear them to pieces that you would inevitably die. In a strange way, that guy has more moral courage in his pinky than 
the four of us. Well, certainly in his bowels. In our entire bodies. Oh, God, I can't even imagine. Dr. Rob, do you have a comment on this particular method? (laughs) I think that says it all. I want to talk about Masada, which is an ancient fortification in Israel situated on top of an isolated rock plateau overlooking the Dead Sea. Very gothic. Oh, overlooking the Dead Sea. Yeah, you'd think they would know that that would be a place where people gravitate to commit suicide. Herod the Great built palaces for himself on the mountain and fortified Masada between 37 and 31 BCE. Almost all historical information about Masada comes from the first century Jewish Roman historian Josephus. On, in 66 CE, a group of Jewish rebels, the Sicarii, took up residence in the abandoned fortress of Masada. The Sicarii were antagonistic to a larger group of Jews referred to as the Zealots. Mm. And Josephus emphasizes that the Sicarii were considered more extreme than the Zealots. Oh, super Zealots. So you have extreme a group of, Zealots. A group of people who are so zealous that their name has become synonymous with <laughs> yeah. zealotry. Yeah. yeah. And then you have a group. More zealous than them. Yes. These guys were hardcore. I'm guessing good things didn't happen. Instead of calling people zealous, we should call them Sicarius. Yeah, no kidding. In 73 CE, the Roman governor, Lucius Flavius Silva, I love Roman names, he assembled 15,000 troops and laid siege to Masada. When Roman troops entered the fortress, they discovered that its 960 inhabitants had set all the buildings ablaze and committed mass suicide. With only two women and five children found alive. Oh, they couldn't find their suicide implements. Yeah, I don't know why they were uh, left alive. Maybe they were left to deliver a they're message. Maybe they are moles. Or maybe they just like said, hey, we're here to tell you, screw you, Romans. Stick it to you. And uh, Soda Jerks, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the current oath of service to join the Israeli Defense Force includes a reference to Masada will never fall again. Oh, wow. We'd rather die in our swords than, uh, than be taken. Wow, I didn't realize that. That's kind of cool. Seppuku is a form of Japanese ritual suicide by disembowelment. Okay. Part of the samurai Bushido honor code, seppuku was either used voluntary to die with honor rather than fall into the hands of their enemies, or as a form of capital punishment for samurai who had committed serious offenses or had brought shame upon themselves. Also known as harikiri, which means uh, cutting the belly. Hmm. And and seppuku also means stomach cutting. Oh yeah, okay. What well, stomach cutting versus cutting of the belly? I guess one is if you're fatter. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. The first recorded act of seppuku was performed by Minamoto no Yorimas during the Battle of Uji in the year 1180. Suffering defeat, he committed suicide. His retainer took Yorimas's head to prevent it from falling into the hands of the enemy. Mm-hmm. He fastened his master's head to a rock oh. and threw it into the Uji River so it could not be found. <laughs> if I can just interrupt briefly, I think Kato the Miner beat this guy to seppuku by a millennium. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah, that is true. Mm-hmm. He just but did, different he, continent, though. Kevin, he yeah. just didn't TM it. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, he didn't... Uh, also didn't know Japanese. He didn't CM it for Kato the Miner. Minamoto, was, as he was cutting, he told his retainer, TM! <laughs> Kato, the Mi- Kato Miner should have CM'd it. Sometimes a lord, or daimyo, was called upon to perform seppuku on the basis of a peace agreement. This would weaken the defeated clan so that resistance would effectively cease. So basically, hey, let's stop fighting just as soon as you disembowel yourself. Yeah, we're going to need a couple of your best fighters to just die. Yeah. And yeah. they should do it for us. Yeah. <laughs> In 
In time, carrying out seppuku came to involve a detailed ritual. This could be performed in front of spectators. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I want to watch. If it was a planned seppuku rather than performed on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. A samurai was bathed, dressed in white robes, and Uh served his favorite foods. It sounds like you go to the spa at like a Hilton somewhere. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. When he was, How is it different than going to the spa, Torn? <laughs> because when he was finished, Kevin, <laughs> his instrument of death was placed on his plate. The warrior. Oh, after he ate? Yeah. So he ate a bunch of like awesome food. Yeah, here's your dessert, pal. Yeah, here's your dessert. It's a sword. The warrior would prepare for death by writing a death poem. Okay. All right. Uh, it, I'm assuming they would, you'd want it to be a little more poetic than K. Bai. There once was a man from Osaka. <laughs> who would soon lay down on his baka. <laughs> With his selected second, Kaishkunin, mm-hmm. standing by, he would take a knife, tanto, mm-hmm. or short sword, wakazashi. Uh-huh. I do like the word wakazashi. Mm-hmm. You should change your name. Wakazashi Leeson. Oh, Think about it. I like it. Can I walk for short? Uh-huh. Held by the blade with a cloth wrapped around it. So held by the blade. Okay. Not by the handle. All right. So that it would not cut his hand and cause him to lose his grip. And he would plunge it into his abdomen, making a left to right cut. Okay. All right. The second would then decapitate the samurai. Mm-hmm. With the sword. Right, yeah. His he, own sword. Now, Seeing... what I've heard is that's so that they don't dishonor themselves by crying out in pain. Mm, I don't know about I that. I don't know if it's true, but that's what I've heard. Yeah. Or that they don't dishonor themselves by not dying, like uh, CM did. Or maybe that's good enough now on it quick. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Ideally, the maneuver would leave a slight band of flesh attached, attaching the head to the body. Okay. So that it can be hung in front as if embraced. Oh, like you like put it in his own arms or oh. something? I think that's what that means. Oh, now why is that better? I guess it doesn't roll away down the down the the, the sidewalk or something. Uh, I do know that in in feudal Japan there was a real thing about touching dead bodies. So oh. uh, like it was a lower class that would have to do all that stuff, right. and so maybe that made it easier to touch the body, or or maybe less this, people had to. Maybe you the don't story have to collect about, all the bits. Maybe the story about the guy tying the other guy's head to a rock and throwing it in the river. People were like I don't want want to tie it to a rock and throw it in a river. Let's make it a thing where it stays attached to the body, all right? People are very self-serving. Because of the precision necessary, the second had to be a skilled swordsman. I would hope so. The process became so highly ritualized that as soon as the samurai reached for his blade, the second would strike. Oh, <laughs> they took the disemboweling, they took out, the of disemboweling the out of it. Eventually, even the blade became unnecessary and the samurai could reach for something symbolic like a fan. And this would trigger, oh man, I, no, I'm just hot. <laughs> yeah, I'm just hot. Right. You're, you're, your second hot is here. just walking past, just sees you reach for the fan. He's like, oh, <laughs> no, no, no. Just uh, instinct kicks in. Yeah. Uh, and this would trigger the killing stroke from his second. Uh-huh. A fan was used when the samurai was either too old or if it was too dangerous to give him a weapon. Oh, I can totally see that scene in a movie. Yeah. The guy's like, yeah, I'll kill my... Okay, and he's there, and then they he's handle the wakizashi. weapon. And yeah. all of a sudden, he's up and just slaying everybody around the room. Very Steven Seagal yeah. kind of a samurai. Yeah, yeah. they saw a few too many Bruce Lee movies uh, before they wanted to give that guy his samurai I, I agree that. that it's Steven Seagal, because Bruce Lee would not be so dishonorable as to say, I'm going to commit seppuku and then do it. But Seagal would just be... Yeah. No of course, now he's going to want to kick my ass. Uh-huh. The first recorded time in a European saw seppuku was mm-hmm. after the Sakai incident of 1868, in which uh-huh. 11 French sailors entered the town of Sakai near Osaka without official permission, and their presence caused panic among the locals. So 11 Frenchmen caused panic? Why, they bring too many croissants or something? <laughs> they might have. What the? You can't just drop by. 
Sakai. <laughs> They're just that rolling. says that on the sign. Sakai, don't drop by. <laughs> you <laughs> like maybe, rhyming? Maybe they were just like you know being typical Frenchmen, like smoking a lot and blowing into people's faces right. and like <laughs> doing a lot of that. And the Japanese did not care for that one bit. A force was dispatched to turn the sailors back to their ship, but a fight broke out and the sailors were killed. Upon protest, Wait, who was killed? The French or the Japanese? The French. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Sailors. Upon protest of the French representative, financial compensation was paid. Those responsible were sentenced to death. Okay. And a French captain was present to observe the execution. As each samurai ri- committed ritual disembowelment, the captain was so shocked that he requested the rest be pardoned, and nine of the samurai was spared. So hold on a second. So he was okay with if they were going to like chop their heads off, but the fact that they were disemboweling themselves first, he was and like, I, I I can't watch another nine of these. Maybe he thought like guillotine or or yeah. uh, something civilized, fast. like a guillotine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Head in a basket. Don't yeah. see the head. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's one thing to to be angry that your sailors are dead and to demand justice. It's another thing to stand there and watch them cut their bellies open and have their guts spill out. Yeah, and, have their and heads uh, he could off. go. Okay. Oh, uh, I got it now. Um, yeah, no, pretty cool. I overreacted. <laughs> I'm glad that they've been punished. <laughs> yeah. Please now, stop. We got paid, right? Somebody got paid. We got a wallet full of money. Yep. Um, now, this is probably a good time to jump in in a preventive way. We've been talking mm. about sort of ritualistic suicide in the context of dishonor mm-hmm. or maintaining honor. Um, this is this would be very different from... Uh, suicide of the kind that would be practiced in modern society, which essentially is a product of hopelessness, mm-hmm. yes. which is the single biggest predictor of suicide. But, of course, it is very easy to convince yourself of all kinds of things yeah. when you are acutely suicidal. Mm-hmm. And probably the single biggest thing that I hear is the individual attempting to create an honorable intention to their death i yeah. don't want to be a burden right. That, right i hear that again and again and again and again and right. again and what i try to emphasize with individuals is all right what sort of a burden do you think will be imposed by you dying right yeah that which, greater burden which than... cannot be undone yeah and sometimes folks get that or and and uh, then, then I know the conversation's going to go in a good way. Right. Or they're like, well, you know, they'd be sad for a while, but eventually they'd forget me. Mm. And that you're coming into the hospital. Right. Or what kind yeah. of a burden are you, are you if you have a failed attempt? Yeah. Right. You could become an extreme burden. Of an extreme yeah. financial burden mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So don't, uh, don't mistake what we're talking about now with the idea that uh, a despair-driven suicide is equatable. honorable. Yeah, mm-hmm. equatable at all with ritual suicide. In 1970, author Yukio Mishima um, tried unsuccessfully to incite the armed forces to stage a coup d'etat. Oh, After 1970. That, yeah. Wow. After that failed, Mishima committed public seppuku at the Japan military headquarters. His second, 25-year-old uh, Masakats Morita, tried three times to ritually behead Mishima, but failed. Oh, oh, oh. Like, I thought beheading was bad. <laughs> Failed beheading. beheading. Three, three times. Three That's times. Worse. That's... That sounds like worse. Mishima was finally decapitated by another man. Oh, how embarrassing. Uh, Step aside. <laughs> Give me that. Morita then attempted to commit seppuku himself. Yeah. But his own cuts were too shallow to be fatal, so he too had to be beheaded wow. by this other man. 
Choose your second wisely. Yeah, no kidding. Well, muscly arms. Bad just, sepulchre. Just don't. Just don't kill yourself. That's yeah. even better. Don't yeah. worry about a bad second. Don't yeah. try suicide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Bud Dwyer. In 1987, Pennsylvania State Treasurer R. Bud Dwyer was convicted of bribery and was about to be sentenced. Facing up to 55 years in prison and a $300,000 fine, Dwyer called a press conference seemingly to announce his resignation. Once in front of the cameras, Dwyer read from a prepared statement. Statement read, I've repeatedly said that I'm not going to resign as state treasurer. After many hours of thought and meditation, I've made a decision that should not be an example to anyone because it is unique to my situation. Last May, I told you that after the trial, I would give you the story of the decade. To those of you who are shallow, the events of this morning will be that story. But to those of you with depth and concern, the real story will be what I hope and pray results from this morning in the coming months and years, the development of a true justice system here in the United States. I'm going to die in office in an effort to see if the shameful facts spread out in all their shame will not burn through our civic shamelessness and set fire to American pride. It's a lot of shames he threw into a single sentence. Mm. Please tell my story on every radio and television station and in every newspaper and magazine in the U.S. Please leave immediately if you have a weak stomach or mind since I don't want to cause physical or mental distress. Joanne, Rob, Didi, I love you. Thank you for making my life so happy. Goodbye to you all on the count of three. Please make sure that the sacrifice of my life is not in vain. He then handed three staffers an envelope each before producing another envelope with a 357 revolver inside. Dwyer said, please leave the room if this will affect you. He opened his mouth, inserted the gun, and pulled the trigger. Right, News this- cameras caught it all, and the feed went out live, and we have a YouTube link to this video, and it is graphic. It is very graphic. It is very graphic, and it is very awful. Um, so... Was this guy actually guilty? Like he was. Oh, like, he'd been found guilty. Yes. Yeah, so he's, 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 been, he's so, being sentenced. And he knew. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he was waiting for sentencing. Okay. Like, he had been convicted and uh, was, you know, going to jail. For and he didn't want term. to go to jail. I'm assuming. And he, he wanted did to not send some to kind to of a message. I think. Uh, I don't well, know what his message is. Like hearing that thing, like he, he's been convicted of bribery. Yeah. But he's talking about like. Fixing like the a true system. justice system right. and stuff like that. So, so this kind of goes back to the idea that we were just talking about a few minutes ago of recasting your suicide as if it is an act of honor. Right. One thing that really stands out to me as I hear this guy's statement is actually how grandiose it is. Yeah. yeah. And so I have to wonder all the shame this and shame that, yeah. and shamelessness and shamefulness. And, yeah. And American pride. Yeah. yeah. So this, uh, I my, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing in retrospect, but this strikes me as an extremely narcissistic individual. Mm-hmm. So. When Wait, he... narcissistic individuals go entering public service, entering public office, and going mm-hmm. up for election for something? Crazy talk. Crazy talk. Uh-huh. On top of that, um, to be found guilty of something like bribery mm-hmm. would be extremely shaming. And you can think of narcissism as a personality organization that is, in some ways, centered around shame avoidance or shame disavowal. Mm-hmm. This happens in a very public way. There's no way for him to escape the shame. So he's got to double down yeah. and recast the entire situation as the honorable David against the corrupt Goliath. Yeah. And by the end of the statement, he's almost delusional. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of this is going to be the story of the decade. Mm-hmm. I want the development of a true justice system. Yeah. The sacrifice of my life not being in vain. Yeah. Like, yeah. what? So there's, a compl- there's not even any acknowledgement that of he did doing. anything, let yeah. alone that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of a perfect example of how uh, an individual, in the face of a severe narcissistic injury, reorganizes himself to Cast himself deal in light with of the hero. Cast himself as the hero, but it's insufficient to kind of get out of the burden of shame, and then it leads to a, sort of a narcissistic suicide driven by a narcissistic injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he probably wasn't the best state treasurer that they ever had. And one of the really interesting things about this is, on the one hand, on the surface, he's saying, uh, if you have a weak stomach, you should leave the room. But the reality is, he doesn't give anyone sufficient time to leave the room. Mm-hmm. And, and he doesn't explain what he's about to do. He doesn't explain so no what one... he's about to do. All he does, in fact, is heightens the tension, and he draws more attention to himself. On oh, some yeah. level, Creating this guy drama. doesn't want anyone to leave the room. That's he right. wants all eyes on him. And that is a profoundly unempathetic act toward those who then were yeah. involuntarily subjected to witnessing this uh, very violent suicide. Yeah, like he really doesn't care how it might affect the people in the room. Not at all. Yeah. Sunday is gloomy hours are slumbering Sleep 
in the deep of my heart, darling. I hope that my dream never haunted you. They stole your lunch money in grade school. It's time to build your secret laboratory and plot revenge. Your magnificent monster is ready to rumble. Let's play Kaiju a Go Go. Kaiju a Go Go is an action strategy game where you take the role of a mad scientist. Choose from one of three giant monsters and then proceed to attack cities around the world. As the game goes on, you can build up your lab and build up your creature with over 90 unique power-ups for even more city-stomping fun. Go to kaijuagogo.com. That's K-A-I-J-U-A-Gogo.com, or search for us on Kickstarter to find out more about the game and how you can help make this game come to PC, Mac, Linux, and mobile devices this fall. Support perks include having your own special building place in the game, to claiming an entire city in the game, as well as copies of the game, of course. Kaiju a go go. If you want to rule the world, sometimes you gotta break a few cities. Doctor Jack Kevorkian. In, How can we do an episode on suicide without talking about Jack Kevorkian? Yeah, yeah. In 1987, Dr. Kevorkian started advertising in Detroit newspapers as a consultant for, quote, death counseling, end oh, quote. All right. His first public assisted suicide took place in 1990. Janet Adkins, a 54-year-old woman diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Charges of murder were dropped as there were no laws in Michigan regarding assisted suicide at the time. In 1991, however, the state of Michigan did revoke Kevorkian's medical license. So was that an unfair or fair action on the part of the state of Michigan to revoke his medical license? I think under the constraints of the law at the time, uh, it's perhaps uh, reasonable. Yeah, it was the um, only thing that the establishment could do to him at the time because he wasn't criminal. Right, right, and then this is—I mean, this is the issue of euthanasia, which may, which almost certainly deserves its own episode at some point. Right, killing As, of young people. In Asia. In Asia. Asia. Mm. Uh, which would be a very different scenario from um, suicide. Euthanasia sir, is legal in, in, well, it's illegal in a lot more places now than it has been. Not mm. legal in Canada. Still under uh, the criminal code, and there's a, a case winding its way to the Supreme Court again. And the idea, fundamentally in euthanasia, is somebody with... Uh, end-stage fatal illness with mm -hmm. intractable symptoms in their right mind who has a desire to die that's present over time and um, significant psychiatric disorder has been excluded. So there are a lot of safeguards mm -hmm. in these kind of situations. And in, in many cases, ethically, this can be certainly construed as a humane uh, act. And certainly that's what uh, Kevorkian Believed. Would have yeah. believed and pleaded, um, but of course his story kind of takes some interesting twists and turns. Right, right. 
Kevorkian reportedly assisted in the deaths of 130 terminally ill people between 1990 and 1998. Mm-hmm. In each of these cases, the individuals themselves allegedly took the final action, which resulted in their own deaths. Kevorkian only attached the individual to a euthanasia device that he had devised and constructed. The patient then pushed a button which released drugs that would end their own life. Two deaths were assisted by means of a device which delivered the euthanizing drugs intravenously called the Thanatron, or death machine. Uh That sounds like a transformer. It It does sound like a transformer. Or a heavy metal band. Yeah. Other people were assisted by a device which employed a gas mask fed by a canister of carbon monoxide, which Kevorkian called the Mercatron, Mercy Machine. Right. Uh-huh. Mercatron. Oh, Mercatron, not Mercatron. <laughs> it's not a mercenary robot. <laughs> no, it was a Merkin robot. It was a Merkin manufacturing robot. On the November 22nd, 1998 broadcast of 60 Minutes, Kevorkian allowed the airing of a video which showed the euthanasia of Thomas Uke, 52, who was in the final stages of Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm -hmm. After Uke provided his consent, Kevorkian himself administered a lethal injection. On the video, Kevorkian dared the authorities to try to convict him. Mm. Uke's own family described the act as humane, not murder. I mean, even if I disagree, the taunting is... Yeah, kind of uh, foolish. Yeah. Seems a little bit, uh, you like poking the dragon. Well, again, here's grandiosity and narcissism rearing its head. Yeah. 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 On March 26, 1999, Kevorkian was charged with second-degree murder and the delivery of a controlled substance. Kevorkian discharged his attorneys and proceeded through the trial representing himself. There's there you go again. Narcissism Mm -hmm. again. A decision he would later state he regretted. After a two-day trial, the Michigan jury found Kevorkian guilty, and the judge sentenced him to 10 to 25 years. Yeah, no shit, he regretted it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that'll do it, Tit. Yeah, so that- what is the Thanatron? So the Thanatron, invented by Dr. Kevorkian, the first... <laughs> <laughs> Thanatron! It has three bottles. The first bottle contained ordinary saline. Mm-hmm. The second contained a sleep-inducing barbiturate, sodium thiopental. Mm-hmm. The third was a lethal mixture of potassium chloride, which stops the heart, and pancuronium bromide, a muscle relaxant that prevented spasms. Hmm. Pancuronium sounds like something James Cameron would invent to cure everything. <laughs> That's, it's the... it's pancuronium. I've got tuberculosis. Ah, oh, this pancuronium will fix that. Yeah. Not just a muscle relaxant, it's actually a paralytic, so it hmm. would stop the diaphragm and mm-hmm. the individual wouldn't be able to breathe. So then the question arises, did these individuals suffer um, did they know, essentially, that they were suffocating? Right. Right. Yeah. Who knows? There were no regulatory well, controls, no witnesses. Uh, this didn't involve other physicians, healthcare providers. Uh, it's, I think, problematic in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, a mechanical device triggered by the person's falling arm started the lethal drug flowing. The idea was for the deadly chemicals to enter the bloodstream only after the person is asleep. Death usually occurred within two minutes. Now, the interesting psychological angle on Kevorkian is that he was well-known within his medical school class as having an extreme death obsession. Mm. He seemed to get a real charge out of being involved in cases where uh, where there was lethality. Uh Um, He had, uh, if memory serves correctly, uh, posters uh, hanging in his room. A poster Uh, of Thanos? Well, certainly sort of death-themed posters, and in some ways this ended up kind of not being a surprise to some of the folks he went to medical school with. So he was like that, the weird dude in the dorm who was kind of death-obsessed. People were like, oh, all right, he's going through medical school. He was the first goth. He spent a little too much time with the corpses, you know, gave his cadaver a name. Did he? 
Listen yeah. to Bauhaus. Yeah. I have a, a machine here called the Deliverance Machine, which was invented by an Australian, Dr. Philip Nitschke. It was a notebook computer with software titled Deliverance, which would ask a patient three questions and automatically administer a lethal injection of barbiturates if the correct answers are made. The following questions were asked and required the patient to click yes in order to proceed. Number one, are you aware that if you go ahead to the last screen and press the yes button, you'll be given a lethal dose of medications and die? Are you, number two, are you certain you understand that if you proceed and press the yes button on the next screen that you will die? And number three, in 15 seconds, you will be given a lethal injection. Press yes to proceed. The machine was used legally under the Australian Northern Territory's Rights of the Terminally Ill Act 1995, which was later overturned. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I, wonder how much, I wonder how much later. Uh, and the fourth question, the one that nobody ever got to, was would you like to play a game? Shall we play mm-hmm. a game? <laughs> this next section... Uh, I f- it seems to come from uh, the Toronto Star. Okay, mm-hmm. that's it's, a newspaper. It's all over the it's all over the interweb, and yep. various shady websites. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the only semi-reliable source I found was from the Toronto Star. Okay. okay, I don't really know anything about the Toronto Star. It is a newspaper. I used to read it when I lived in Ottawa. It's a uh, you is know, it a not, rag? No, it is not tabloidy. Okay, yeah. So this is in the archives of the Toronto Star. Yeah, it's like one half step below the Globe and Mail for Toronto-based newspaper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1987, Franco Brun pled guilty to three of six charges and was sentenced to 15 days in Metro Toronto East Detention Center, now known as the Toronto East Detention Center. Okay. He was found dead in his cell. Right. And a post-mortem ruled that he died of asphyxia with a pocket-sized New Testament Bible down his throat. What? What? The medical examiner at first suspected murder because he didn't believe someone could do that to themselves, as he was not even physically strong enough to manually pull the object out of Brun's throat. Okay, so I, I've seen those pocket-sized Bibles, and they don't fit in any pocket that I know of. Well, this is two and a half uh, by four inches by a half an inch. Oh, that is kind of pocket-sized. Two and a half by four. I guess if you rolled it a little, you could yeah. put the soft cover, presumably, yeah. Wow, wow. So, and then the medical examiner reefing on it to try and pull it yeah. out of his throat, couldn't even do it post-mortem. Brunsell was locked. No one had direct access to him, and there were guard checks every 20 minutes. Quick, somebody call Sherlock Holmes. No yeah, exactly. Kidding. A re- snake did it. <laughs> the red-covered Gideon's Bible uh, had been seen in Brune's hand the day before he died. Uh-huh. The Bible was behind the soft pallet at the back of the man's throat, reaching from the level of his nose down to the larynx. So, like, that's like past your tonsils, right? Like, where is that, the soft pallet at the back of your throat? Is that... You're an ENT doctor, right? <laughs> The uh, well, the soft palate is um, essentially. Uh, oh, let me think. Am I getting this right? Because this is the hard palate. Uh-huh. It's behind the hard palate. Okay, but that doesn't really help. Yeah, but that's kind of. But that's <laughs> like your, right at the back of your throat. It's in your yeah. mouth. It's in your mouth. Okay, all right, that's somewhere. good enough. Yeah, uh, and he shoved it in there, and it choked him off. The jail psychiatrist had prescribed antipsychotic medication, mm-hmm. but the prisoner refused to take it. Oh. Uh, at that point, like, why do they have a choice? Like, uh, uh, this is the part I don't get, where you're having somebody with a psychotic episode. Rights, yep. probably. Yeah, oh, God, rights yet again. Probably because ugly maybe head. the jail psychiatrist is a maniac and he's just forcing oh, people I, pills down. I guess that's always possible, People too. have been convicted for pot or something like that. I, the dead giveaway should have been when the guy tried to swallow the pills and they bounced back off of the Bible. Well, it would sort of depend on the nature of the psychosis Mm -hmm. and whether there was dangerousness attached to it because typically 
it varies province by province and jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Ontario tends to be more restrictive in terms of its Mental Health Act provisions. Mm-hmm. And there can be situations where if an individual is psychotic, but you can't ascertain that they are a danger to themselves or others, then they might retain uh, what's called capacity and competency. So the right to refuse treatment, they're mentally competent right. to, to refuse it. Right. And perhaps in this case, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here, not knowing the details, but mm-hmm. for, for someone to be able to commit an act that's this uh, bizarre and severe, almost certainly psychosis would have to be involved mm-hmm. to actually get uh, an entire book lodged from essentially your nasopharynx, which is the um, part of the, you know, the, think of the big tube that's mm-hmm. behind, your, behind your mouth. Yeah. That's from the level of the nose, basically down to the level where the trachea starts. Yeah. Um, Some in your leg, right? Somewhere in, in your, your leg, leg. Yeah. yes. I mean, it's insane. It's intense that you could have like had the... The, um, the fortitude to like actually shove this thing that far down your gullet. Right. Well, and it would have taken <clears throat> some time to, to get it in there because yeah. it would have to kind of go down, then you push in the top, and then it pops up. Yeah. And then it's stuck in the, yep. uh, in the entire nasopharynx, the oropharynx, and the hypopharynx. And all three, the tripharynx area. Well, uh, I think this leads into uh, the story I have about Chris Benoit. On June 25th, 2007, police entered Benoit's home after several missed appointments. The officers discovered the bodies of Benoit, his wife Nancy, and their seven-year-old son Daniel. Upon investigating, no additional suspects were sought by authorities. It was determined that Benoit had committed murder-suicide. Over a three-day period, Benoit had killed his wife and his son before hanging himself. His wife was bound before being killed while Benoit's son was drugged and likely unconscious before Benoit strangled him. Benoit then committed suicide with a weight machine. A weight machine. He hung himself on a weight machine somehow, in some fashion. Maybe he got like that, the big thing of weights with the cable around it, put the cable around his neck maybe? Mm. Something like that? WWE canceled a three-hour live show scheduled for that same day and replaced the broadcast version with a tribute to Chris Benoit's life and career, featuring past matches and commentary from wrestlers and announcers. However, once the details of the murder-suicide became apparent, the WWE quickly and quietly began distancing itself from the wrestler by removing merchandise and no longer mentioning him. Toxicology reports revealed there was no indication anything in Benoit's body contributed to his violent behavior that led to murder-suicide, also concluding there was no roid rage involved. Tests were conducted on Benoit's brain by Julian Bales, the head of neurosurgery at West Virginia University, and results showed that Benoit's brain was... Oh, what what should um, Julian Bales' voice be? Julian Bales. Mm-hmm. Sound like Julian Bashir from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Do it, go! He doesn't know that. I know. Do it, go! Oh, I'll do what I think. Why don't you just do from Julia Steve- Child? Oh, because the first four letters are the same. Benoit's brain was so severely damaged, it resembled the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. He was reported to have had an advanced form of dementia, similar to the brains of four retired NFL players who had also suffered multiple concussions, sank into a depression, and harmed themselves or others. The conclusion was that repeated concussions had led to severe behavioral problems. This is why we should never do sports. Oh, okay. Well, that that's a bold. Heads, not yeah. not yeah. sports that involve headbanging, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And this now has become a much more recognized problem than even it would have been in, in 2007, thanks mm-hmm. to the, uh, uh, the, the ongoing studies now of NFL players, mm-hmm. uh, including autopsies, uh, post-mortem autopsies, and then functional imaging studies and psychological mm-hmm. behavioral profiles now. And chronic traumatic brain injury, we now know almost certainly is linked with uh, depression, poor impulse control, meaning poor ability to control anger, Mm -hmm. and then these kinds of uh, disinhibited sorts of really violent uh, behaviors. You know how they nip this one in the bud? Pre-mortem autopsies. Oh, do we want to talk about special suicide locations? Sure. Or... I don't know if special is the right word, but significant. 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 That's probably a better term. First off, Aoki Gahara, also known as the Suicide Forest or Sea of Trees, is a 35-square-kilometer forest in the northwest base of Mount Fuji in Japan. Mm-hmm. Due to the wind-blocking density of the trees and an absence of nearly any wildlife, the forest is known for being exceptionally quiet and has long been associated with death. The act of abandoning an elderly family member, or ubasute, Okay. May have been practiced as late as the 19th century. So bring your old elder. elder yeah, but bring, bring your, your grandpa. U- bring your used people. And leave them in the forest. Yeah. Recycle. Despite numerous signs in Japanese and English mm-hmm. urging people to reconsider their actions, Aokigahara is still the most popular place to go in Japan when killing yourself. The last report in 2003 cites 105 bodies found in the forest, but in recent years, the local government has stopped publicizing the numbers probably a good idea based on uh, our you know uh, uh portrayals of the media yes. training guide um probably a good idea not to talk about how many people go there to yeah. end their lives mm-hmm. don't emphasize yeah. now you make me feel bad that i said it cites 105 bodies i that was my intention was to make you feel bad okay. the most common methods of suicide in the forest were hanging and drug overdoses mm-hmm. well i want to talk about the prince edward viaduct in toronto oh Yeah, a Canadian homegrown suicide site. The Prince Edward Viaduct is a three-hinged concrete steel arch bridge with a total span of 494 meters and 40 meters high at its peak. A three-hinged bridge, you say? A three-hinged concrete steel arch bridge. Okay. Yeah, there's hinges involved. The Prince Edward Viaduct became a magnet for suicide. This not only posed a risk to the lives of jumpers, but also to traffic underneath, which was in danger of being hit by a falling body. With nearly 500 suicides by 2003, the viaduct ranked as the second most fatal standing structure in North America after only the Golden Gate Bridge in San right. Francisco. This prompted the construction of a suicide barrier called the Luminous Veil. The Luminous Veil. I like the Ooh. name of the barrier almost as much that's, as I like about n- its effect and what it did. That's not a yeah. Miyazaki film? It, that's maybe where they got it from. Uh, the Luminous Veil, I mean, is a very poetic name for basically a net that catches jumpers. Yes. Because uh, <clears throat> JumperNet was already TM'd from something else. Something else. Uh, the, uh, it was probably TM'd from that stupid movie, Jumper. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Luminous Veil was completed at a cost of $5.5 million. Uh, from the time of approval to construction, 48 to 60 suicides took place before it was finally complete. But at $5.5 million bucks, if you save hundreds and hundreds of lives, seems like a kind of a bargain. Uh, I'd like to talk about Beachy Head. Beachy Head? Yeah, it's in East Sussex. Yeah, no, no, kingdom. I know what that is. Oh. It's when you have sex on a beach, and then you want to kill yourself afterwards. I thought it was just when you slept in the beach, and then you had sand in your hair for the rest of the day. Mm. Oh, I got Beachy Head. I thought that it makes was... you want to kill yourself? No, that doesn't make me want to kill myself. Okay. 
I thought it was just a, a, a blowjob with sand involved. Oh, gritty. I oh, I'm not saying it's a good thing. But silver lining hmm? brushes your teeth at the same time. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to try it. Beachy Head is the highest chalk sea cliff in Britain, 162 meters above sea level, which has made it an attractive place to jump for the suicidal with an estimated 20 deaths a year. A chalk sea cliff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you could use it to write your suicide note. Right. Mm-hmm. Just dig right in there. The Beachy Head Chaplaincy team conducts regular patrols of the area and attempts to stop potential jumpers. Signs have been posted at the site by good-hearted locals with personal phone numbers urging those attempting suicide to call them. What if you're an atheist? Uh... You still don't want people to kill themselves, don't you? No, but if the jumper is an atheist, those trolls that go on those like uh, internet uh, suicide watch lines mm-hmm. and like trolling, yeah. they probably go to this place and like prank call people who yeah. leave their personal numbers. Yeah, give me a call. Yeah, yeah. do it. Ugh. Yeah, animals. There's people that are worth hating. Mm-hmm. Workers at the pub and taxi drivers are also on the lookout for people contemplating suicide. The Maritime and Coast Guard Agency responsible for the rescue of injured jumpers and the recovery of the deceased have attributed a significant reduction of suicides to the work of the chaplaincy team and good coverage by the local media since 2006. Oh, okay. Oh, and so, they, uh, uh, so you can make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you want to you want to you want to talk about making a difference. I yeah, built in this is China, the Nanjing Yangtze River Bridge. Built in 1968, the bridge is a double-decked road rail truss bridge. Truss bridge. Mhm. <laughs> truss truss bridge. Yeah. Its upper deck spans 4588 meters, 4.5 kilometers. Whoa! While its lower deck is a double-track railway. Uh, I need to know how many feet is in 4588 meters. Nah. Okay. 4.5 kilometers like, multiplied by 1.6 to get miles. Yeah. So, oh, you could have just seven said four and a half miles. kilometers. Why didn't you say I could? that? Yeah. I did, actually. Thanks for not listening. <laughs> okay. The bridge carries approximately 80,000 vehicles and 200 trains per day and has had over wow. 2,000 suicides, earning its notoriety as the world's most common suicide site. Wow. Chen Si has spent his weekends and holidays saving more than 200 people who have attempted to jump from the bridge. In 2000, he saw a young woman climb onto a bridge railing, and he realized she wanted to kill herself. He rushed over and saved her. After this, Chen was determined to be a suicide watchman. He found his calling. Yeah. No kidding. He rents a two-room house nearby where each survivor is invited to stay for as long as they want after their attempted suicide, and they receive free psychological counseling from Chen and university volunteers. Here's a quote. Saving them from the bridge is merely a small step. Just pulling them away from the bridge doesn't mean that they have been saved. I have to help them rebuild their confidence and ignite a new hope for life. Only oh. then can they move on with a new life. Well, that's, that's pretty, like, I mean, uh, from a from a, uh, a psychological, yep. psych- psychiatric standpoint, that's that's pretty solid. Extremely uh, astute, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever think that maybe he rescues somebody and then he's living with them <laughs> and then he doesn't like living with them anymore and he changes his tune? Oh, bad roommate scenario? Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, dude, you left the dishes in the sink again? I want to go back out on the bridge? I don't think he's going to be criticizing anybody. Yeah. So he seems like a pretty, pretty awesome dude. Yep. Sometimes he brings survivors back to the bridge to help him rescue others. Oh. Oh, Give them them a purpose in life. The bridge karmic circle. Here's another quote. When they participate in saving others, they forget about their own plight and shoulder the responsibility of helping others. He plainly states about the suicidal. I am an ordinary guy and a stranger to suicide, and I can save them. If these people's friends and relatives intervened when they began to have suicidal thoughts, how could they arrive at such desperation? 
That's a pretty poignant. Well, because often individuals who are starting to head into a suicidal place, uh, getting back to that, I don't want to burden anybody. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't disclose. Right. They're as your internal. It's all internalized as your thought processes start to become distorted by your hopelessness and by your depression. You feel as though if I was to reach out, that would scare people. I don't want to scare them. It's better if I die. And then they'll just forget about me. So uh, this guy, basically, he gets kind of the big red flag of them climbing up on the railing. So he, he gets some insight that maybe friends and family didn't necessarily have. Well, a warning yeah, sign. exactly, right? Because yeah. indeed, if, uh, if if people are sending off clues, yeah. then quite often friends and family do intervene. Mm. And um, that's, I would say, in a significant percentage of cases that I see, individuals are brought by family and friends yeah, or even right. um, coworkers, supervisors, so, or college teachers. If you're thinking about it, tell somebody. Yeah. yeah. Tell people who care. And there so are people who care. Open up a little bit. This guy seems like a superhero. This guy does yeah. seem like this guy a little seems bit of a should, we should make we should send him like maybe a spandex suit or something. Mm, something maybe like, like a that. net gun. Yeah. He's a he's an intuitive psychiatric genius, that's mm. for sure. In the news. Two thousand and eight, South Carolina, a man who received a heart transplant in nineteen ninety six and later married the donor's widow died the same way the donor did, a self inflicted gunshot wound. No foul play was suspected in the death of 69-year-old Sonny Graham. He was found in a utility shed in his backyard with a single shotgun wound to the throat. Mr. Graham had received a heart transplant in 1996 from a 33-year-old man who had also died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. In 1996, grateful for his new heart, Mr. Graham began writing letters to the donor's family to thank them. And in January 1997, met the donor's widow, Cheryl Cottle, then 28, I felt like I'd known her for years. I couldn't keep my eyes off of her. And in 2004, Mm. they would marry. Creepy. So in 2008, he was 69. That's right. So 12 years earlier, he... 57. 57 and met a 28-year-old, and then they got married. Yeah, what's to be suicidal about? Yeah. That sounds pretty awesome. Dr. Rob, can a transplanted heart kill you? Being a book out of just from the person that it came from. Oh, well, and then can it re- lead you to suicidal reje- thoughts? Re- rejection, uh, organ rejection oh, right. can kill yeah. you, certainly. Can it, ca- can it cause you to do things? <laughs> but one thing we know that uh, probably would be playing a role here was, is you know What I'm getting at is, was the heart haunted? <laughs> the heart was not haunted. Okay. But okay. we know that major cardiothoracic surgery carries a very high risk of depression. Uh, really? Yes. Why is that? Because your other heart was broken. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, we I don't know. Yeah. But uh, cardiac disease, surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, these all come with elevated risk of developing uh, mood disorders. 2009, Podgorica, Montenegro. Mm-hmm. Milo Bogusic, 52, yeah. paid cash for a coffin okay. and asked staff to wait while he wrote out his own obituary. Okay. Then he jumped into the casket, put a gun to his head, and pulled the trigger before the shocked undertakers could stop him. Oh, okay. So he was uh, saving delivery costs. He was trying to be efficient. Right. I guess. Right, right. He was basically FedExing himself. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Medics managed to save him. Oh. When the bullet passed straight through his chin and nose, missing his brain. Ah, another one of those uh, gunshot guys. That's what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. He was suffering from some family problems and was devastated that he hadn't managed to end it all. The undertakers refused to give him a refund on the coffin. Wait, so that means he asked for a refund on the coffin? Presumably, yes. 
Wow. They said he'll have to keep it. He'll get some proper use out of it one day. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's true. That is true. That is true. I just can't believe this guy had the balls to ask for a refund. That's awesome. But I didn't die. (laughs) And he he bought it now before inflation made it more expensive. Yeah, well, in the... In the uh, Undertaker's defense, they didn't call it a suicide box. Mm. So it was not mm. false advertising. Correct. March 2014, United Kingdom. Danny Bowman, a British teenager, tried to commit suicide after he failed to capture his perfect picture. The okay. teenager was so obsessed with selfies that he oh. would spend 10 hours a day taking up to 200 photos of himself on his iPhone. I wow. thought you kept going to art auctions looking for the perfect picture. Yeah. Not a picture, a photograph. Ah, yes. That kind of a picture. Yes. Uh-huh. Bowman, 19, lost almost 30 pounds and remained housebound for six months to get the perfect self-portrait. Wow. He would take 10 photos just after waking up. I only took three this morning. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's successive. Yeah. <laughs> Bowman was so addicted that he dropped out of school and slipped into a depression and nearly overdosed on pills in an attempt to kill himself. His mother found him unconscious and rushed him to hospital. He survived and was later treated for OCD and body dysmorphia disorder. Uh I was constantly in search of taking the perfect selfie, and when I realized I couldn't, I wanted to die. I lost my friends, my education, my health, and almost my life. The only thing I cared about was having my phone with me so I could satisfy the urge to capture a picture of myself at any time of the day. Bowman, who has been tagged as Britain's first selfie addict, mm-hmm. started posting self-portraits on Facebook when he was 15. So, Dr. Rob, what's yeah. your take on this? Well, I think uh, essentially uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and body dysmorphic disorder are the correct uh, diagnosis just based on this little snapshot of information. And mm-hmm. interestingly, he's able to describe that phase of his life quite reflectively. Right. So I in his rearview mirror. Yeah. So you like his chances. Based, yeah. Based on what he's saying there, it sounds mm-hmm. like he's um, at least that at that time period was doing well. So is, should he be allowed to ever have a phone with a camera in it again? Well, it's well that solved the problem. It's uh, it's a good question. I mean, the number one trigger of uh, relapse in an addictive disorder, as we recall from the addictions episode, yeah. is the availability of the thing you're addicted to, whether right. that's cocaine right. or slot machines, or in this case... A camera. A camera phone, yeah. yeah. So this this guy might uh, need to basically be somebody who either has minimally functional phones or just has no access, uh, to, access to cell phones at all, or he could risk uh, relapse. Right. What if we... What, who's a really... But I'm just speculating. Right. Who's a really attractive celebrity? Uh, Brad Pitt. What if you had a phone that no matter what picture you took, it came up and looked like Brad Pitt? You would Pitt? get a picture of Brad Pitt. You'd get one of those apps. Yeah, yeah. secretly put it in his phone. and uh, yeah, the same you... picture every time. Yeah. Didn't matter where you were. <laughs> yeah, problem solved. Was. Yeah. I think that is a script you're going to have to write. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, pop culture? So uh, I just want to preface our conversation on pop culture because there are innumerable scenes, individual yeah. scenes of suicide or suicide attempts. So we had to narrow our focus quite a bit to talk only about pop culture in which either the entire plot revolves around a suicide or the inciting event that drives the plot forward is a suicide. So nobody, I can't believe you didn't talk about this specific scene or that specific scene. We're talking only about movies that are entirely driven by suicide. Okay. Yeah. So I think Dr. Rob's got uh, one he wants to talk about. It's uh, The Bridge from 2006, the documentary film by Eric Steele that tells the story of a handful of individuals who committed suicide at the Golden Gate Bridge. In 2004. Right. And this film uh, 
is uh, very controversial, uh, highly problematic, and ultimately, I think fundamentally, uh, I'll just come Blood. right out and say it, ghoulish and uh, immoral. Right. Um, okay. And, and very voyeuristic. The filmmakers would, they spent an entire year in the park on either side of the bridge. There are parks at the base, and they lied to park officials about why they were there. They were saying they wanted to capture the imagery of the park as it changed through the season. Right. What they were actually doing was looking at the bridge through binoculars, looking for potential jumpers. And anytime they saw one, they'd start filming. Right. And Instead of trying to stop them from jumping. Right, yeah. I suppose you could make a case that there is a role for observation of natural phenomena. Mm-hmm. David uh, Attenborough style. I mean, yeah, Attenborough style or, or say, in the, in the style of scholarly research or the news. Or journalistic, yeah. Yeah, but this was none of those things. Yeah. These guys were making a movie for profit. And then what they would do after they had the scenes would be to approach, to determine the individual's identity, and then approach individuals who knew the um, knew the deceased right. and uh, get interviews with them on camera. And surprisingly enough, there were a number of individuals who agreed to participate in these interviews. And um, which uh, in itself is, is, is somewhat surprising. Mm-hmm. But uh, this, this movie does absolutely everything exactly wrong if you want to look at it by the World Health Organization guidelines. Yeah. It romanticizes suicide. It romanticizes the location of suicide. It romanticizes the method. And it gets the individuals on screen in uh, very often very emotionally charged interviews. And therefore, the, it's almost like each individual who's interviewed is sort of eulogizing yeah. the not talking about consequences. Like yeah. Avoiding the consequence That's conversation right. That's entirely. Right. So who knows what happened in the entire interview. But, but let's edit it into the movie. Right. So the the filmmakers um, definitely chose what they, they did uh, very carefully. And I think uh, ultimately uh, I find that the the movie really chilling and problematic mm-hmm. just from a just from a process and sort of structural point of view you know i, I think why who would make this movie mm-hmm. they didn't show the dead bodies washed up shore downstream that kind of a thing they did show scenes around one recovery mm-hmm. and they did show one individual complete fall right down into the water right, right. from standing on the rail and, and so and there were a number of scenes of of wide angle distance shots of individuals falling into the water and making a very large splash. Right. I watched Harakiri from 2011, a tale of revenge, honor, and disgrace centering on a poverty-stricken samurai who discovers the fate of his ronin son-in-law, setting in motion a tense showdown of vengeance against the house of a feudal lord. That's true. Okay. But I would describe it in a different way. How would you describe it? I would describe it thusly. Okay. This samurai... Comes into a lord's house. Yeah. There's this thing that's, that's been going on. Okay. With what they call uh, suicide bluffs. Okay. So uh, disgraced. This was set after a time of some great war or battle. Is this like a bluff charge by a rhino? Yes. Oh, okay. Kind of. Okay. So all these uh, daimyo have been, I don't know, absorbed into the countryside yeah. or killed or whatever. So there's all these uh, uh, masterless samurai roaming around. Nothing okay. to do. All right. Poverty. Okay. They have no income. So they go to 
a lord's house says, I want to use your courtyard okay. as a place to perform seppuku. Okay, because... I like, want to die honorably, Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Counting on the daimyo saying, no, no, here's some money. You know, oh, it's kind of a clever begging technique. Yeah. Oh, this poor guy. Yeah, have some have some food and and money. So this movie starts off with this Ronin saying, "This is what I want to do." Right. And the Lord, or actually not the Lord, but one of his. You don't really see the Lord until the very end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. But one of the officials says, "Here's the story of what happened to the last guy that did this." Right. That story being, they said, "All right, you're going to kill yourself." Here's how it's going to go down. This is you're you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, we're not going to give you any money. Right. So then we go. That's this flashback story. Yeah. Spoiler alert. And this is a really good movie, and you should watch it. Okay. Yeah. So if you don't okay. want to hear what happens, fast forward through a bit. Yeah. Um. They tell the story of the guy. Uh, this is a younger samurai. Yeah. Or a younger Ronin. He comes in. They tell him he's gonna. He has to do it. They give him a sword. His sword is made of bamboo. Okay. He has to try to kill himself with a bamboo with sword. With a bamboo sword. They show everything. Very wow. difficult to do. Wow. Eventually, he tries to fall on it. It snaps. Now he has to stab the sharp, oh, you know, wow. half broken sword. Yeah. And the second, who is one of the Lord's retinue, yeah. is uh, he. Won't take any mercy. He says, no, stab it. Stab it in deeper. You know, move it around. Twist it. And all this <laughs> right, kind of stuff. Right. You know, kind of to to show this, partially to show the less, to, you know. Teach other Ronin a lesson. Yeah. And, yeah. but also partially because he's a dick. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that is, that, that, I think so dick, much so, dick might be understated. Maybe mostly that. Yeah. <laughs> so much so yeah. that the Lord, or not the Lord, the, I don't, I don't know what his official title is. The, the, the uh, guy official. in charge. Yeah. Is like. Gets up. He's got a limp. He gets up and he starts moving towards to, you know, take control of the situation. Yeah. So that all happens. Then we flash back to the first part or flash forward or whatever. Yeah. Where so that's what happened. Do you still want to? Yeah. Do you still want to go through with this? You can. If you leave now, we won't say anything. Yeah. He says no. I'm gonna. I won't, I'm gonna commit seppuku. Yeah. Then we find out that the first guy who came in was his son-in-law. Oh, okay. So, it's pretty awesome. Right. Okay. And I don't really okay. want to say anything more right, than right. that. Okay. But you definitely see the seppuku. You def and you then you go through the whole uh, basically story of this young samurai's life as a right. boy growing up, getting married to the other samurai's daughter, becoming part of the family, having a baby. Uh, this his, movie does sound awesome. Uh, his wife is having health problems. They're totally poor. He sells his sword uh, to. Uh, <clears throat> To make money, so now he has the bamboo sword. Nobody knows about the bamboo sword. They just yeah. think it's his normal sword, but of course you never take it out. So that explains that. And the uh, the ending is kind of awesome. Right. And wow. it's generally, it looks really great. Yeah. It's one of those movies where, you know, you kind of want to watch everything. Yeah. And it's really well shot. All right. I would give it all of my thumbs up. Oh, okay. Okay. Harakiri, the death of a death of a samurai, not to be uh, confused with uh, Harakiri from I think it's 1912 or something like that. And there's one from like 1963. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. sure there's quite a few. Uh, I would like to talk about one of my favorite movies, actually. All right, uh, Harakiri colon what? Heather's. Oh, I didn't realize that's the alternate title. <laughs> yes. 
I think this is a great movie. It's mm-hmm. available currently. I don't know how long this will last. It's available in full for free on YouTube to watch. Right. Uh, might, they might find it and take it down, but it's been up for a long time. So mm-hmm. definitely go and watch this movie. If you're going to do that and you don't want to get spoiled, skip this too. Because yeah. I love this movie. Yeah. It's a 1988 teen black comedy starring Christian Slater and Winona Ryder, who I'm just going to say, I don't like Winona Ryder. This is still one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Uh, they play a couple of teens who kind of semi accidentally kill uh, Heather, who is the leader of a clique of rich and attractive high school girls. They're all named Heather. Right. Uh, it's they, kind of the homicidal version of Mean Girls. It this To me, Mean Girls was them going, let's redo Heather's right. and make have less killing. Yeah. She doesn't mean to kill her. She's just trying to play a prank. Uh, you'd find out that... JD, which is the Kristen Slater character, was joking about putting a drain cleaner into this prank that she's going to drink, does it, and then she accidentally takes the wrong cup and he doesn't tell her. So it's sort of accidental. They covered up to make it look like a suicide. And she's so good at writing the suicide note that it's all expressive and emotional that this this, uh, mean girl gets Mm. a ton of sympathy post-death, which then creates a huge change throughout the whole school. Right. Uh, from there, suicide becomes a major theme throughout the movie. More students end up getting killed and their deaths are covered up as suicide. The hippie teacher uh, of the school organizes a love rally. Slater's off-kilter character's intentions just get bigger and bigger and more murderous. Mm. But it's a teen comedy. Like black, It's, it's black a black teen, teen comedy. comedy. Also, the hot new song that they keep talking about, like that's going, that the kids all love, is called Teenage Suicide, Don't Do It right. by Big Fun. It's so good. It's yeah. it's. I, I remember dark, enjoying this movie quite a bit back in the day too. Wickedly intelligent. This yeah. movie pokes fun at everybody. It pokes right. fun at uh, jocks. It pokes fun at the weird kids when they're being mean. It pokes f- like the only people it doesn't poke fun at are the people who don't deserve to have the fun poked at them. It's right. it it's got a lot of empathy for people who are experiencing bullying and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Love it. The eighties uh, were the high watermark of teenage film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I tried to find great teen movies after this and there are not very many. This really to me feels like where teen movies peaked. Hey, I was a teen in the eighties. Yeah, well, there you go. It was perfect timing for us. It was. Uh, I've got a bit of trivia for this. It's kind of interesting. We didn't mention this uh, famous suicide. This relates to uh, after they kill two of the school's jocks, Christian Slater's character says, football season is over. 17 years later, Rolling Stone magazine published an article with Hunter S. Thompson's suicide note, and its title was, football season is over. So are they suggesting that Hunter S. Thompson is... May uh, have watched Heathers. Yeah. But at the same time, he did cover sports and things like that in his articles. But it's a pretty big coincidence. Uh, well, I mean, speaking of black teen comedies, one of my favorite movies of all time is 1985's Better Off Dead. Oh. One of my other favorite Possibly teen comedies, one yeah. of the funniest films I've ever yes. seen. Yeah. John Cusack plays Lane Meyer, whose girlfriend Beth dumps him for the captain of the high school ski team, Roy Stalin. Uh, Lane decides that death is the only way out of his misery and his half-hearted attempts at suicide always fail with comedic consequences. Yeah, so good. This is a movie that... It's a totally typical idiot boy, likes the blonde pretty girl, ignores the not-quite-so-pretty dark-haired girl until yeah. he wises up. Right? That formula's done a million times. Yeah. But it's so dark, yeah. but so funny and touching, and the performances throughout are great. 
Uh, the one piece of trivia, yeah, I highly recommend everybody run out and go see this movie. It's yeah. awesome. Yes. It might be the high watermark of John Cusack's career, in my personal opinion. Mm. Mm. You know, maybe only exceeded by Say Anything, perhaps. Yeah. And there's a very good send-up with Better Off Dead aspects in... Um, Gross Point Blank? South Park. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, there's a great South Park episode in uh, high school skiing, and there are a lot of allusions back to Better Off Dead. Is this uh, the movie with the uh, claymation burger? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The claymation okay. burger. Where everybody everybody wants, wants some. Yeah, David Lee Roth singing along to it. And also the the uh, newspaper delivery kid who wants his $2 yes. chasing $2. him down. $2. $2. I want my $2. Yes. Wait, oh, yeah. I can't swim. <laughs> my one piece of trivia from this is uh, one attempt uh, that is in the film is based on a true story. The director, Savage Steve Holland, uh, went so far as a teenager to stand on a plastic garbage can in his garage with a rope around his neck that hung from an overhead pipe when he was dumped by his girlfriend in high school. In the movie, Lane Myers is hang- is trying to hang himself and his mother opens the door right. and it pushes him off the can right. and he stands there and he struggles and right. struggles and eventually falls down. In real life, realizing it was a terrible idea, uh, Savage Steve Holland tried to step off of the can, but as he did so, the lid cracked under his weight. He collapsed into the can and the pipe broke with water <laughs> pouring down on top of him as he flailed in the garbage can. His mother entered the garage and got upset because, because of, the, of mess. the mess he had made. <laughs> that isn't uh, the, the fertile territory for comedy gold. I don't know what is. Now that's where Mr. Chen has a point about friends and family. Not intervening yeah, in a helpful yeah, yeah, way. Yeah, right, right there, exactly. Uh, Scent of a Woman from 1992, wherein uh, uh, Al Pacino's character has decided he's going to commit suicide because he's blind. He's going to have like one great weekend in New York and then off himself. Hoo-ah! Uh, That's the movie. Yep, Sean O'Donnell's character Charlie returns to find Slade in his military uniform, preparing to commit suicide with a gun. Charlie intervenes and attempts to grab Slade's gun. Al Pacino says that he made himself appear blind in this movie by not allowing his eyes to focus on anything. And it was reported that in order to make Chris O'Donnell cry during Lieutenant Colonel Slade's near suicide scene, Al Pacino had to take him aside and scream at him drill sergeant style. So it doesn't say much about Chris O'Donnell's acting chops. (laughs) I do got to give it up for Al Pacino, though. His depiction of blindness was really dramatically compelling. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think it's a watchable movie. Mm-hmm. I think it gets a little melodramatic in the yeah. final sequence at the trial at the school that you know gives Al Pacino a reason to live or whatever. But and it's kind of over the top, you know. But uh, uh, but the lead up to that, it's watchable. I don't know if it deserved all the uh, Oscar attention it got, but it's an eminently watchable movie. It but, may be in the introduction of Who Ah. It was into, definitely yes. into mm-hmm. popular culture. But far more than Emily Watchable, a really great movie that I enjoy immensely, The Virgin Suicides from 1999. Mm. Uh, the film opens with a suicide attempt of the youngest sister, Cecilia, as she slits her wrist, wrists in a bath. A short time later, Cecilia jumps out of her bedroom window and dies when she impales herself on an iron fence. Oh, Ooh. Jesus. Her sister Lux and Lux and her three other sisters are taken out of school and sequestered in their house, unable to leave. The sisters contact boys across the street by using light signals. After months of confinement, uh, this is a spoiler alert moment. I mean, mm. this is from 1999, so if you haven't seen it already. But the title of the movie is The is, Virgin Suicide. Is a spoiler alert itself. Yeah. After months of confinement, the sisters leave a note for the boys, presumably asking for help to escape. 
the boys wander into the basement only to discover that the girls had all killed themselves in a suicide pact moments before. Bonnie's body was hanging from the ceiling. Therese took an overdose of sleeping pills. Mary stuck her head in the gas oven. And Lux left the car engine running in a sealed garage. This is Sofia Coppola's directorial debut. It's beautifully shot. Uh, I think that there's a lot of um, metaphor with respect to, you know, struggles in high school. So this precedes Lost in Translation? This precedes Lost in Translation. Wow. Yeah, by a couple of years. So it's, uh, I, I think it's well worth watching. I really enjoy it. And a very young Kristen Dunst um, does a pretty good job as the sexy sister. Futurama has uh, suicide booths in the future, which uh, show up in the very first episode, which uh, if anybody's seen it, I'm sure most of you have. Uh, it's a Bender and Fry meet. He, yeah, yeah. He <laughs> ends up uh, wanting to make a phone call and goes into the suicide booth, puts a quarter in, not realizing what it is. Right, right. And has to dodge all the uh, deadly implements that come out of the walls. Whereas, so, Bender, whereas Bender wants to commit suicide. Right, right. Oh. Bender wants to commit suicide and Fry saves his life. However, in the episode Ghost in the Machine, Fry believes that a human life is more important than a robot life, so Bender decides to kill himself again. Only this time he really follows through. Instead of dying, he turns into a ghost that haunts Fry. Huh. Uh-huh. All right, right. so there I've you go. There's, there's consequences out there for anybody who might be considering it. Ghost robots. Yes. Something you might not have considered before you have to Futurama. Spend all eternity as yeah. a ghost robot. Ghost mm-hmm. robots. Can't be fun. Tedious. <laughs> it's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling. An ominous feeling. A feeling. You know that we'll be back when the week is new, and we'll have more gross facts for you, and you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while recovering from a self-inflicted temporal abscess. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter, at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Torn, you know that you don't take deep breaths. That's what people who do physical activity need to do. Good. Have a sip. Now the 80% of his lungs that never normally get used are all overreacting. Yeah, freaking out. Hey, I played Connect yesterday. Mm Mm-hmm.